This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on this side. Happy Tuesday to you. Tis the day of all days. Tonight's the night. Fight night. Could be. (laughs) Holy cow. GOP um, debate. Final one of the year. Woo! Thank heavens. Now, the deal is, is Donald Trump going to actually make it? Because he apparently had a rally last night that got pretty out of control. Yes, the videos I've seen, just of a couple protesters, but there's been protesters at yeah. other events he's held. Oh, yeah. And uh, security detains them, and then the local police come and remove them for disturbing the, pro- <laughs> the proceedings, I guess they'd say. I love it that when, like, the guy's protesting, then the crowd starts booing and hating on him, then other people start fighting, and then Donald Trump's, like, doing play-by-play. Yes. Get the creep out of here, or whatever he said. Get the guy out of here. Well... He deserves it. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, stuff like that. But it, it it's Crazy. one of our uh, former – we had a guest on a couple weeks ago, McKay yeah. Coppins from yeah. BuzzFeed. He was there at the Las Vegas <laughs> Those uh, were great. rally, fight night, whatever you want to call it, yeah. that Trump was holding. And uh, he kind of narrated on Twitter for a few minutes of just like – he goes, I'm not sure what I'm seeing here. This is – this is quite odd. Holy cow. Yeah, some of it there. Yeah, listen to this. Other uh, Some comments shouted out by Trump supporters as protesters were forcibly escorted from the room included the Nazi salute Zeke Heil. Sheesh. And he's Muslim, was one of, the, one of the protesters were shouting. NBC News reports after the fifth or sixth scuffle between security and protesters, Coppins attending his first Trump rally expressed surprise at the circus. He says, I'm new to Trump rallies, so maybe this is normal, question mark. But this is unlike any political event I've ever seen. McKay's like, is this what we do at a Trump rally? It's like a world it's like world wrestling. Yeah. Uh, all-star wrestling. Well, there are bigger rallies than any other candidate. Oh yeah. Yeah, they huge. have like huge conference areas. Well, and if and- you're gonna make a scene, you know. If this, right. if you want to make a, an anti-Trump statement, get to his rally. If you see any of the the footage of Jeb Bush rallies, there's like three or four of his close friends and Jeb, and they're Strangers having a nice conversation. It's just this nice like <laughs> piano nice city, bar yeah. scene, <laughs> and it looks like, and, and honestly, Ted Cruz looks like he's in some sort of rest home or. Yeah. Activity center of some kind. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and but, Trump, he looks like he's in some sort of uh, some sort of stadium yeah. or assembly, a conference center type thing where there's a massive area and hundreds of people. Meanwhile, you wonder if if in the ba- in backstage for tonight, like are all of the other candidates, like a Fiorina needs to do something. Yes. She needs to make a move tonight. Uh, Kasich needs to make a move tonight. So it's like. Are they all back there sharpening knives and I don't, like, yeah. figuring out how to, okay, I'm going to take his left flank, and then you go to the right, and then, Jeb, if you'll come right up the middle, I think we can get Donald Trump tonight. Yeah, other than taking out his knees, I don't know what they could do to cut into his lead. Do you remember those Frankenstein so. scenes when they're like trying to go get Frankenstein in the castle? With the pitchforks? With the pitchforks. And the torches all the and all that? All people are yeah. gathering around. Storming the gates? Something's got to happen tonight. They're, they're saying CNN had a headline about cruise missiles. Yes. Cruise is going to be a big target, you would think. 
And there, he already is. It seems like there should be some really I, desperate people. I heard a quote from Trump, I think, from this rally. He goes, Ted Cruz, I have no idea why he's so popular in Iowa. When you're against ethanol, I just don't understand. <laughs> Jab. Yeah. It's uh, Trump, by the way, says those disparaging comments about Muslims and now is at 41%. Yep. He keeps growing. So maybe there is going to be a third party movement that won't be the GOP. Because the GOP is saying that what Trump is doing is not the GOP. Right. Do you remember? You can't distance yourself from your own candidate. Do you remember? Exactly. So do you remember during the whole Obama uh, 2012 race, there was a lot of talk about the power of the independents. Mm Mm-hmm. So it seems like maybe there really are three parties. There's there's the Democrats, there's the GOP. Uh, I was going to say light GOP conservative, which Trump is rallying, Cruz is rallying, and um, the Alaskan governor that saw Russia from her doorstep. She never said that. What's her name? Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin. She never said that, by the she way. She never said that. She, she said that she was made the, up on she, she, Saturday Night Live. She was the mayor of the town closest to Russia. Right. <laughs> Which she was. She was. That was a she fact. Totally was. And Saturday Night Live said, I could see it from my house. So that, was, that, seems like, that seems like that's becoming its own little party. And then there's yeah. kind of the independents that can't believe what's going on. Yeah. So we would call those GOP. They're calling them GOP. I don't know. Are they just independents? I think they're just independents. They're not. They're looking at both parties going, eh, I don't know if this really represents me and what I no, want. Right. So, so maybe it's, yeah. maybe there will be a little breakout party. Like Trump keeps threatening it. Or are we just seeing both parties go to the extremes for the primary? Oh, yeah. And then try to get the nomination and then they all come back to the center for the general election. No, I think we are, except. And then there, everyone points fingers. You didn't say that six months ago. And they go, eh. Right. Except I guess the dilemma is, does the GOP in general feel like they're being represented by these extremes? Could be. Because it seems like a lot of people are thinking, what is going on? But then I mean, apparently 41% are like, yes, Trump. Yeah. You nailed it. Anyway, it's going to be a fun night tonight. I have a class I'm teaching, so I won't be able to see the, the knockdown. But I for sure will record it. And I have a feeling there will, it will be in the police reports in the morning. <laughs> are you going to watch it tonight? Some of it. I, that, I usually go back and um, there's several sites on Facebook that I follow that they grab sound bites. Yeah. And those usually give you uh, – the instead of sitting there watching the entire thing, which at times the last few debates get kind of muddled down in process. Right. Where people are start correct, like, no, 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 this is my turn to talk. You you already spoke. I need to have yeah. my – and I did that stuff. Like, come on. I don't care. I really want this to be – Get to the meat. I, I want this to be a fight between the candidates. I don't want it to be about the media yeah. this time. Well, I, I think being uh, – the media got the message after CNBC. Oh, yeah. Stay out of it. And that they're just they're, – we're going to mediate. We're going to do it this way. Yeah. And then the next – you know, so I, I think they're going to just answer, ask questions, keep it – try to keep it on, on the issues. You think they're going to try to turn them on each other? Or was that like bad form? That was bad form and I think they'll go after each other anyways. I think oh, we're getting think... down to a, a make or break type uh, time in the process and I think the so candidates you, will go after each so other. So if you were one of the establishment – parties members which would be down in the five percent three percent range which uh who do you take on the cruise do you send a cruise missile or do you send a trump 
stump? I don't know. It seems pointless. <laughs> yeah, it does. I don't think Carly Fiorina can do anything to punch up high enough to make a difference. Yeah, why just say Carly? Because why? she's at the bottom. That's rude. Poor Carly. I I can't I, believe it. I, I mean, saw a thing yesterday. We uh, were looking at a possible guest about marketing yeah. and presidential candidates, and they showed a graph of uh, just like Google searches, and they had the they represented them by spheres, and the, the biggest one at the top, this massive overpowering thing is Trump. Really? How many people are searching for information about Trump? Wow. And then there's this little tiny little dot at the bottom, it's and that's Carly. Carly Fiorina. Well, you know who's searching for Trump are all of the uh, establishment, you know, employees that are trying to figure out ways to bring Trump down. Yeah. They're looking for dirt. Hey, um, it's going to be an interesting day. In fact, today's guest, uh, Dr. Greg Murray, will be joining us. Um, he is a political science professor from Texas Tech University. By the way, has uh, a background in evolutionary theory, and he talks about how um, our kind of our maybe our fight or flight brain impacts our reactive political decision making. Today he'll be talking about is terrorism and those and the attacks in San Bernardino and in Paris are they how are they actually going to atta- um, impact voter turnout? So we'll talk about that. But I'm he's going to have a lot of insight into Donald Trump. Why is why is Trump able to make such an inflammatory comment and then get more poll in the poll? The number one issue. When voters are asked, what's your top issue? It's terrorism. Terrorism. My top issue was Ben was gone. Did you notice that? I did. Ben's back. Ben, where were you? I was taking finals for school. How'd they go? Good, I think. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He failed. See, I've been there. They called me. You take the test, and you're like, I feel good about that. Then you get like a D. You're like, what? It's the first time I've had somebody, one of my producer's teachers call me. Really? And say, you're going to need to... You're going to need to keep Ben close. Can you tutor Ben? Like Ben Ben wasn't even close on the test. So you did okay? Yeah, I think so. You know, you're going to be here tomorrow, right? Yes. And the next day, right? Yes. And the next day, right? Friday, I'm in Arizona. Mm. So you're doing the show from Arizona. Yeah. So I'm I'm packing my portable <sighs> in the form board. of in the form of Garrett. Well, no, no, I have my portable the portable board. Um, yeah, mm. and I'll I'll be. I haven't seen this technology yet, so that's interesting. Are you taking Friday off? No, no, I neither am I. Yeah, I'll Weird. be here. Are you t- you'll be here Monday, though, right? Yes. For real? Yeah. And Tuesday? Mm-hmm. And Wednesday? Yes. You're lying. Is he lying? No, he'll be here. Ha! Did he say ha? He said ha, like in your face you type of what? ha. I like Garrett better. Garrett doesn't ever say ha. Ha! Hey, let's uh, get to the headlines, find out what else is going on around the world. Terry? Thanks, Matt. Following a meeting with National Security Council at the Pentagon, President Obama confirmed in a press conference Monday that the U.S. is hitting ISIS harder than ever. Obama comment, the Obama's comments came just over a week after he gave an Oval Office address on the fight against ISIS that did little to quell anxieties. The point is ISIL leaders cannot hide, and our next message to them is simple. You are next. Tough talk coming out of the Pentagon. While Monday's speech held no major announcements or strategy shifts, Obama explained that ISIS has lost thousands of square miles of territory in recent months. And while Obama acknowledged that progress needs to keep coming faster, he remained firm in his resolve that we can be successful there. The fifth Republican presidential debate will be Tuesday, December 15th. So tonight, live from the Venetian 
in Las Vegas. I was watching uh, CBS, the reporters standing there, and you, you, you're like, is he in Venice? Look at the, yeah, wow. they have the gondolas <laughs> and you have the, the, the river. Yeah. Oh, wait, he's at the Venetian in Vegas. Okay. It's like, why is he in, why is he in Venice? I guess for, they uh, can't have it at like the Trump. Casino. That'd be a little be awkward, probably. Yeah. Uh, hosted on by CNN, the first of the night's debates. The undercard, if you will, starts at 6 p.m. Eastern. The primetime session doesn't start till 8.30 Eastern. So hmm. plan for that. 69% of Americans say they have watched at least some of the televised debates, whereas 43% reported watching debates in the 2008 contest. So there's more interest. The next dem- d- uh, debate for the Democrats will be on the 19th in New Hampshire on ABC, which is funny because that's, again, another Saturday night, and it's the Saturday before Christmas. And no one's going to watch this thing. Well, I think that's their plan. Yeah, they're just protecting Hillary. That's what they're accusing the, the yeah. Democratic committee of doing. And they're like, no, no, this is opportunity. We, we, you know, like, really, there's no one watching TV Everyone's Saturday shopping night. on a Saturday before Christmas. Right. Come so, on. Kind of a, an interesting ploy there. Donald Trump's lead over the Republican field has widened to its largest margin so far in a new poll taken after his proposal to temporarily ban Muslims from entering the U.S. A new National Washington Post ABC News poll released Tuesday found that Trump attracted 38% of supporters from registered Republicans and Republican leaders independence. Ted Cruz moved to into second with 15%, twice what his support was last month. In a Monmouth University poll, Donald Trump has surged to 41% support with Ted Cruz at 14%. Hmm. So that continues to go on. Donald Trump's physician, Harold Bornstein, released a report saying the Republican presidential frontrunner has had no significant medical problems. He also I cl- am the healthiest human ever known to man. He also claims that over the last 12 months, Trump has lost at least 15 pounds. He has no history of using alcohol or tobacco products. Bornstein concluded by saying that Trump would be the healthiest individual ever elected Boy, to the presidency. Sounds like Donald wrote that. I know. Healthiest individual ever. Uh, Pete Rose, baseball all-times lead, yeah. all-time leading hitter, hitter, will remain barred from the majors, the league announced on Monday. It's been more than a quarter century since Rose, now 74, was permanently booted on charges of betting on games while he managed the Cincinnati Reds, including matchups involving his own team. Mm. There is also evidence to suggest he did the same as a player. The infamous Charlie Hustle, who has since cop to some of the accusations against him, has applied for reinstatement to the league three times, most recently in March. Current commissioner Rob Manfred, his decision to uphold the lifetime ban means Rose will still have no shot at earning his place in the Hall of Fame. Wow. Which comes up every year. Yeah. Someday, someday, he'll have to quit betting and uh, they'll let him in, maybe. Hey, um, interesting guest coming up next. Dr. Greg Murray will be joining us. And we are going to be talking about is terrorism affecting voter turnout? Do you think it will? As more and more of these attacks um, like Paris, like San Bernardino keep happening, is it going to impact how you vote? We'll talk about it, folks, and uh, maybe how your uh, ancestors may have set you up for your voting styles today. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We will be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, after recent attacks in Paris and uh, Santa, uh, San Bernardino, the world was once again flooded with sadness and fear 
With every terrorist attack, people worldwide reflect on the safety of their country and often are filled with a greater sense of citizenship and resolve to come together. According to our guest today, Dr. Greg Murray, terrorists don't always win. In fact, his research shows that the attacks, uh, like in Paris um, and even in San Bernardino, actually increase voter turnout. He says these events motivate people to scrutinize the political environment more closely and assign greater importance to current and upcoming political events. Dr. Murray joins us now on the show today um, from Lubbock, Texas. Hello, Dr. Greg Murray. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Matt Townsend. Thank you for having me on this morning. Great to have you back. We had you on last time where you talked to us about the candidate's height and some research you had done there. Talk about your new research. Well, it's actually, I guess, older research about um, voters versus terrorism. So a terroristic act, like we saw in San Bernardino, does it impact voter turnout then and voter and our decisions we're making in in the ballot box? Well, it certainly appears from some research that I've been involved with that it does. I mean, when you think about when you talk to people who think about terrorism and study it and policymakers who think about what to do about terrorism, the broader view is that terrorists are not just trying to affect the immediate victims of those, you know, those people they hurt. Right. They're also trying to scare broader society. So our question was, you know, are they really doing it? Um, is there some sort of effect there? So what we did is we went and looked at a bunch of democracies across across the, the globe, and it was, I think there was about 50 or 50, 55 of them, something right in that range, including the U.S. And, and a variety of others. And what we found is, is when there's a terrorist attack, it actually increases voter turnout within the year following the attack. Oh, wow. Yeah, and now it's not a huge, huge effect. It was a few percentage points, but it was enough that it was the effect was clearly there. And it's interesting because, as a matter of fact, the more damage that's done in the attack, that increases voter turnout even more. So the more people who were harmed, the more people who were killed, that tends to inspire people to um, turn out even more. So it certainly appears that, yes, indeed, the uh, terrorists, when they're, when they're doing their heinous, their heinous crimes that they're doing, they are affecting the broader, the broader um, population, but they may be affecting it in a way that is not exactly in line with what they were originally intending. Yeah, I guess they thought we would, we would just scatter and run, but instead people, I guess, are uniting and then going back to the basics of democracy. They get back to voting with about a 2% think- increase, you say. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I think I think that makes sense. People, you know, we, we explained the psychological mechanism in the actual paper that we did. And I explained it a little bit in the in the post. And I think I think it makes a lot of sense when our system is under fire, when people are trying to dramatically damage it and possibly even take it away from us. Then that that's when people feel even stronger about, hey, we need to participate in this thing and protect it. Now, a lot of this does this go back to your kind of core research in um, evolutionary kind of psychology and and how how our brains work. I mean, what, what's driving this? Yeah, it certainly does. And, and that's, that's, of course, what inspired it, at least from, from my perspective. Because what we have is when we're operating and making decisions on a daily basis, as you know, when we go through the day, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of decisions that we have to make. We've developed a psychological system that's basically two parts. 
One is the part that responds uh, by habit, right? It's right. just a normal thing that we go through the day, and we're driving to work, and it's just a, a regular drive, and nothing in particular is going on. And we basically, you know, people all the time talk about how they got to work, and they're not sure how they actually did it. They don't remember all that much of the actual drive. It's because they're, they're using the hip habitual part of their, of their system to make the drive. But when something novel happens, then we turn on another system, where we actually pay attention and, and, and closely scrutinize what's going on around us. And this is what we believe what is going on when you start talking about terrorist events in, um, in democracies and voting, is that, yeah, you know, when things are just kind of status quo and it's the same old politicians running the same old issues that we talk about over and over again, people tend to fall back on their, on their voting habits of either voting or not voting mm. um, or how they vote. But... When something, you know, something like this happens that's, that's novel, at least in psychological terms is what we think of as a terrorist event, as being, as being a novel event or something draws our attention, that's when we kind of wake up and pay attention and think a little bit more about what we're doing and, and evaluate things more. Is it um, – I mean sometimes they – in politics, there's what they call, I guess, the October surprise, I think it is, where there's always something that happens in October – that kind of rocks the the vote. Some of them are like created. Like I think George Bush uh, was outed as having been an alcoholic or whatever right before hit George uh, W. Bush. Um, right. I guess w- what's interesting though is those probably aren't those aren't like as novel or groundbreaking maybe or as shocking as a terrorist attack. Exactly, and I mean I think that, and I think that's the, that's the case, and that's what we were finding. In this research, and you know, when you think when you start thinking about personal attacks on candidates, we don't really—I mean, we're not shocked by that anymore, right? I mean, <laughs> the way our politics have gone, the candidates say all kinds of terrible things about each other, so that's not—that's not really shocking. I think, for instance, in Bush's case, everybody kind of understood he had a—he had a healthy party history in mm-hmm. his past. Uh, yeah. from, you know, going into his elections and such. So I'm not, you know, is it true? Is it not true? You know, and I, it came really close right before the election, too, which made people more skeptical of it. It was really interesting in that particular case. I think if that had actually fallen uh, maybe a couple of weeks prior, it might have had a much different effect. I think it was pretty much discounted because it, it in that particular election because it fell so closely and it couldn't really be people couldn't really evaluate it. But it's that same general thought. You know, here we are at the end. We've got to do something to shake up what's happening. So you know, whatever it could be, whether the you know the opponent is a drunk or you know anything else. There's you know there's all kinds of things that can play. Well, and I think what's really interesting about what. Uh, what you're teaching us too is that the terrorists aren't winning. If their goal is to scatter us and to, I mean, they might be making us more afraid, um, but that ten, that fear tends to, I guess, bring us drive us closer together. Does does the fear though make us more irrational? It seems like um, lately there's been more irrationality in the process. And, and, you know, is that just being driven by fear or am I just biased? Well, I, you know, I don't – irrational is a hard word to deal with in terms of, you know, because what, what is beneficial to one person may not be beneficial to another. So, for right. instance, when I step back and take, put my hardcore evolutionary hat on, 
you know, I know that my main interests, um, uh, you know, as a homo sapien or are survival and reproduction. Right. right. So um, in evolutionary terms. So now if you're talking about people shooting at me and blowing me up, uh, if I'm worried about that and fearful of that, I, you know, to a degree, that's very rational. Right. Um, so on that sense, you know, that's rational. Now, if you think about a variety of proposals that have been made, you know, and it doesn't matter. And I mean, I hate to pick on Trump because right. it's not just him, but he seems to be playing into this, you know, building walls and, and stopping people from coming into the country, um, you know, varieties of groups. You know, on on evolutionary sense, that might make perfect sense. On a modern world sense, that may not be as rational. Mm. Um, you know, so it's, it's a little hard to tell. I hate to say rational. I do understand, though, um, at least from my experiences and my, you know, the the knowledge that I have, at least that from that, that it's not shocking to me that that when people appeal to other people's fear, right, that it has an effect. Maybe um, that's yeah, that's it. Then I mean, if it's somebody accused him of being a fear baiting of, and so so really, I guess if if we keep bringing up the fearful messages, you're saying that does have an effect. Oh yeah, I think so too. And I, you know, and at a point, it's going to become an issue of do people believe it? Now, there's going to be some people, and you're probably like this, and I'm like this to a degree too, where I say, you know, that is horrible, and that is a tragedy, and I am really sorry that happens, and I worry about it. But I also know the probability of it happening to me yeah. is extraordinarily low. Right. Right. So I can sit there and intellect. I mean, it's easy. You know, it's easy for some people to sit and intellectualize that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the case for everybody. And, um, you know, people process information differently. So, uh, you know, for, again, it gets back to for some people, that's going to be a bigger threat to them um, than for other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, it's funny when I go to New York City or Washington, D.C., you know, I, have, I mean, I must admit this starts – Starts creeping into my yeah, it's, it gets a little yeah. Just right? driving in the taxi on the way over, I mean, just that enough is enough to be a terrorist yeah, act. Exactly. So you know, I mean, but again, now and then I step back and say, intellectually, I know the probability of this still happening, even though I am in the primary targets of you know, <laughs> in basically the whole world, the probability of happening to me is extraordinarily small. But I mean, it, I certainly think about it more than when I think about it in love. In yeah, love when you're in love, it that's right? so true. It's so true. Greg, let's take a break. Um, I want to come back and uh, continue this discussion, too, just maybe even more about fear politicking. Greg, again, has a great uh, blog you got to go check out on Psychology Today called Caveman Politics uh, Blog. Wonderful articles that would would probably give you some insight as to why our politicians, you know, position themselves the way they do. They really might be playing to that, you know, that little – That little crazy monkey brain we got deep inside of us, that fight-or-flight brain. Stick with us, folks. Continuing the discussion about terrorism and your vote, this is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, on the phone with us is Dr. Greg Murray from Texas Tech. Uh, 
seated there nicely in Lubbock, Texas. He is um, the uh, he's a political science professor there at Texas Tech. He's also the executive director of the Association for Politics and the Life Sciences, and uh, he uses his uh, his research and his expertise in political behavior, also in evolutionary theory, to help us explain some of our political behaviors that sometimes seem a, a bit uh, a bit out there, a bit um, you know a little odd to us. He's got a great blog if you go to Psychology Today that. Uh, is called Caveman Politics. That has a lot of wonderful articles there. Dr. Greg Murray, welcome back, my friend. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you, sir. Glad to be here. So um, one of the things, I, I can't remember the study now, but there's a study released recently about the, the, the biggest fears that um, people have when it comes to this election and or like topics that they fear. And the government is one of them. It's one of the biggest things we fear. Terrorism is another, also cyber terrorism and identity theft. So it seems like, in a way, if if fear is one of the driving forces to get us to vote, to get us to get out and vote, then the more issues as a candidate that I can kind of create a sense of fear for you, the better. Conceivably so. If if your idea is to drive out drive up people's attention to you and the election itself. Now, the question becomes how that plays out in voters' minds. So, you know, it's always this idea. I used to I actually used to run political campaigns, and it's the idea of, well, I can mobilize voters, but are they my voters or mm. the other person's voters? So, and I think that's what, uh, you know, I mean, I, quite frankly, it's, it, you know, as a political scientist, I'm sitting here watching Donald Trump driving 20 million people to watch political debates, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is awesome. Wow, people that's right. Watch, people don't – political debates don't get ratings like that, <laughs> you know. So on one hand, you know, this sort of, this sort of uh, candidacy has that sort of effect. Now, does that mean it's in line with our values as a democratic society? That's, you know, that's another question to answer. Does that mean that's how we want our, our campaigns conducted? You know, with with uh, with people invoking a bunch of fear in the electric. Well, I don't know. That may not be what we want to do. But I do know that pe- more people are talking about politics and you know, and campaigns now than they have for quite a while. So in that sense, it's an important you know, it's an important phenomenon. Now, again, though, you know, who is who is that sort of rhetoric driving to the polls? Uh, you know, right. I mean, I guess that's uh, you know, it. Yeah. That, that's the question is, and will they, will they, I mean, that's what people keep questioning is uh, Donald Trump's able to bring a lot of people to his rallies that might not normally be voters anyway. They might not have historically voted. So if he can drive new people to vote, I mean, that's a powerful thing if they'll vote. That's exactly right. And I mean, and, and that's what people are talking about and people estimating uh, his demise or not is, you know, there are a lot of candidates who do this, who do this, have this sort of effect. Yeah, they mo- they motivate a lot of traditional or who, uh, people who traditionally do not participate very heavily, mm-hmm. um, and that's fine. But that's the problem with those people, and that they don't, in the end, yeah, they might be interested in talking about it. But that doesn't mean they'll make the effort on election day to actually get to the polls. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting about this sort of talk about fear and such is there is research that shows. That uh, that conservative voters tend to be more responsive to fear uh, uh, 
huh. claims, for lack of a better word, than liberal voters do. So, you know, and, and there's been some research in other countries, in, in Israel and Spain and a couple other places that showed, you know, yeah, there's this terror, the terrorism actually does increase voter turnout. But also what it does, it tends to shift people a little bit towards more conservative candidates. Um, and that makes sense with what we, what we know about conservatives being a little bit more responsive to, uh, to things that make them fearful or more, I mean, or more fearful. They mm. just tend to be more fearful of, of things. So, um, you know, that's another effect that, you know, maybe this fear, this fear rhetoric, uh, you know, maybe this is to a degree mobilizing some of the conservative electors that could that could be happening, too. Um, And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see. There is a point, though, where you push, you know, where you can push it too far. Uh, Trump's you know discussion about stopping Muslims from from immigrating at all. You know, there are there are certain points that people's democratic values jump in mm-hmm. and small d democratic values jump in and say, you know, that's really not what we do in this country. Yeah, that's and, not you know, how we I are. Get, you, you know, you scared me and I agree with you. I'm scared about it. But that's probably not or that may not be the solution that I would support. Did, did you um, see that new study, uh, Greg, about um, a national NBC News Wall Street Journal poll found that a whopping 71 percent of Americans surveyed believe that the many shootings and other acts of mass violence that we've been seeing um, in 2015 are now a permanent part of our life in the country? Yeah. Yeah. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, so I guess the question is, um, so it's it's one thing to have fear. It's another thing to see the fear as becoming permanent, like these shootings, the mass shootings, the shooting in Oregon and all of these different, you know, school shootings. What what happens to the electorate if if we become kind of habitualized to this violence? Well, that's a great pickup on your part because if you go back to the article that, that you were referencing at the beginning of our right. of our talk, what that means is is that people would actually become habitualized to it, and that part of their brain would start taking over, and it would just be, you know, sadly, uh, you know, oh, another mass shooting, ho hum, I'm just going to yeah. move along like I normally do. So that is an implication of that sort of effect, and I mean, I I, I don't I didn't remember seeing what you know that particular part of that study that you referred to, I do remember seeing a part of another study that may have even been that same survey where they said, you know, do you expect another major terrorist attack in the U.S.? And people yeah. said, yeah. So people, you know, people, whether it's, uh, you know, gun violence in general that's causing the mayhem or it's terrorists that cause the mayhem, I think people's level of anxiety right now is really high. Um, in terms of that particular kind of that kind of violence, and um, it's conceivable you're right that if this is prolonged, that um, people will become sort of desensitized to it, and it, and it'll go back to that sort of, you know, respond to everything as habit is, uh, process that we talked about. Is it is it also true? I mean, it seems like after every one of these shootings, uh, which might be habitualizing us, we also have the knee jerk reaction. Of everyone or a lot of people that start, you know, throwing out legislation. Okay, got to control guns. Got to do this. Got to do that. Um, which, which also seems like part of our evolutionary kind of fight or flight brain. Yeah, I the re- the so. reactivity because aren't we like prone to want to act? We want to do something even if it's not relevant. 
Oh, yeah. Exa- I mean, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, think about, I, I just saw a, on a sort of related topic recently, they were talking about how, how bad some of our, um, our antibiotics are, are failing to work. It's because we go to the doctor, we tell the doctor we're sick, and we expect the doctor to give us something. The doctor knows that, you know, there's a good chance that you're going to recover from this in three or four days anyhow, but that we expect the doctor to do something mm. to fix us, so he or she gives us an antibiotic. The same thing, I think, happens with uh, these sorts of, of, you know, catastrophes with the gun shootings. Um, you know, we expect some sort of solution from our politicians and I think the country is such right now that it's 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 going to be very difficult. I mean, I don't even know, you know, and I'm 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 sort of without betraying one way or the other how I feel about this. I'm not even sure if you shut down everything right now and said, okay, we're not going to sell another gun, and you know, nobody's going to exchange guns or anything. Right. And I, I there are so many millions. I mean, there are hundreds of millions of guns in the country. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to stop guns. No. No, and then there's mental health issues, and there's terrorism issues, and there's workplace issues. And, I mean, the issue is more complex than one solution. But, I mean, so great. If we jumped on 12 solutions immediately, we might have an impact. But to just jump on one doesn't seem like we would have enough of an impact. I mean, I, I I think that's exactly right. But it's, I think it's our sort of desire to have our politicians do something or, you know, at least them feeling like they have to look like they're doing something. Mm-hmm. And I, it's just this, you know, these long-term problems, if they were easy to resolve, we would resolve them. Oh, they're yeah. not easy to resolve. And, I mean, and this just happens to be one of one of those issues that falls into that category. Right. Hey, as we're looking um, toward the debates tonight, Greg, what – what advice would you give us as kind of a behavioral expert slash sci- uh, political science expert? What should we be watching for tonight, and what should we make do to make sure we don't get sucked in to our you know our old reptilian brain tonight and turn fight or flight? You know, I think that I think that's a great question. I'm not sure I have a great answer to it. I, I think we as voters need to think a little bit about. Uh, the topics they're going to be talking about and thinking about what our preferences are in terms of that. You know, I'm sure that I, I'm sure Wolf Blitzer is going to ask probably about some sort of gun control stuff. Well, I think we need to think a little bit about, you know, what do we think of as a solution to gun control? And, you know, and, uh, and do we, you know, do we believe it would work or, or how, you know, something along mm-hmm. those lines. I mean, I think that's one thing. I, you know, I, I've kind of over the years as I've watched candidates I think there's an issue of – I've gotten to the point where all I want to do is feel like I can trust somebody. And um, so I think, I think we as voters need to get a sense of as best we can who can, we, who, can, who can we trust to act on the country's best interest, not on their political party's best interest. I think, I think that's one thing. Um, I, you know, again, these issues that are controversial are complex. And quite frankly, I mean, I'm not sure there's really it, – it's hard work for us to really prepare, too, for yeah. a conference or for a debate as a viewer because, I mean, we need to do a little homework, too, and think a little bit about what we think will and won't work and who we're going to support. The, uh, the last thing I would say is in this regard is to – at least from my perspective – None of these candidates on either side or any can- any candidate you can throw up, at least for me, 
is going to be perfect for me on every single issue and right. probably not going to be perfect for me on a lot of the issues. So, I mean, I think, one, we need to realize that, and two, um, to me at least, that's why it drives me back to this issue. Who can I feel is at least making issue, making decisions that I could trust uh, that's making them on the, the best interest of the country? So I know that's not a very satisfying yeah. answer, but that's at least my, um, you know, the one I have at this point, and just realize that they're, uh, they're doing, they're throwing lines out that I consider, you know, we've, we hear this term, the raw meat yeah. of, of partisan politics and just be, you know, just be aware and kind of thinking about when they start throwing out stuff like that, uh, that, you know, is that really helping advance the discussion or are they just trying to get an applause line? Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's, that's sort of some of the stuff I think. About. And see, I mean, yeah, you should, you can know when they're trying to fear you or scare you and make you afraid or when they're trying to move you. And I mean, just, just be aware, I guess, is really what you're saying. I think so. And I, and it, and it, and it, it's, you know, and it requires a little work on our part. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and that's just, that's just part of being a citizen in a democratic society. And I, I think that's okay. Yeah, totally. I think that's okay to ask of us. No, that's good stuff. Uh, Dr. Greg Murray, appreciate you again from Texas Tech and uh, have a, have a good night tonight watching the uh, debates. Oh, I can't wait. I hope you and your, and, and your listeners do, too. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I can hardly wait. It's going to be a knockdown. Good stuff, yeah, Greg. exactly. Appreciate you, man. Take care down there in Texas. Dr. Greg Murray, again, from Texas Tech. And, uh, again, go to Psychology Today. Great blog there, Caveman Politics. Or go to his website, Greg, with two Gs, gregrmurray.com. gregrmurray.com. Interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. Come back. Wrap up this first hour of the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Hey, welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting. Interesting. Uh... Discussion, folks. I mean, it's one thing to know uh, that oh, I just really like what one of the candidates is saying or I get so frustrated by this candidate. I guess it's another thing to know that why it's happening. I mean, one of the reasons you might be getting so frustrated is because they're, these candidates know that if you can be get you to be afraid, you're more likely to, to vote. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you're more likely to vote for them. So don't just go with your fear. Um, as good Dr. Greg Murray was saying, maybe it's more important that you go with the one that you can trust to actually do what they say they're going to do. It's not enough probably to just keep throwing ideas out there. Uh, at some point, who's the person that's going to follow through on it and get it done? Why this is important, by the way, December 15th also is the Bill of Rights Day. In 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt declared December 15th to be the Bill of Rights Day, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the ratification of the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is the collective name for the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution, crafted to address the uh, objections raised by anti-federalists. The Bill of Rights amendment, uh, amendments add certain safeguards of democracy, specific guarantees of personal freedoms and rights, clear limitations on the government's power in judicial and other proceedings, and explicit declarations that all powers not specifically delegated to the Congress by the Constitution are reserved for the states. 
or the people. So um, remember all, by the way, Articles 3 and 12 were ratified as additions to the Constitution December 15th, 1791. One, um, 10, uh, uh, anyway, it's... It's interesting, right? And so as we sit here, you do have the right to have a voice here and a vote, um, which is which is a big deal. Uh, there's a story out of Thailand that is just tragic of a Thai man faces nearly 40 years in jail for insulting the king's dog. <laughs> a Thai military court uh, said that this guy wrote um, a sarcastic post on social media and because of that, uh, guess what? He could get 40 years in jail. Can you imagine? You can't even make a comment about um, a dog, the king's dog. Well, it's a royal dog. Um, you have to draw a line somewhere. <laughs> isn't that amazing? And yet you sit in a country where you have the right to – you know, say anything you want, even run for president, say anything you want, offend everyone in the world, say anything you want. But in Thailand, 40 years in jail, if you're going to dare make fun of the uh, the king's dog in a sarcastic Internet post. Um, the mongrel was owned by King Bumibol Adyuladej. Don't ask me to say that again. It's sedition, by the way, and insulting the king. The Thai military, which seized control of the country in a coup last year, did not specify the exact insult that uh, this man Thanakorn had used. Anyway, it's you're lucky to be an American. And uh, tonight, uh, watching the debates may not always feel like a, a, an easily you know, attained American act of nobility to watch and to understand, but learn. Don't just take the emotional path. Instead, let's take the path that needs to be taken to make this country strong. We'll take a break, my friends. Hour number one, it's in the can. We'll come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Tis the morning of the greatest world wrestling event of all time. The GOP debates. Featuring Donald Trump, who had a really interesting night last night. A couple of protesters, apparently, a couple, a a variety of protesters, I guess, tried to crash his party and it didn't go so well. That, uh, a little bit of a beatdown, people were being tossed to and fro. In fact, McKay Coppins, uh, who was on the show last um, a couple of weeks ago from BuzzFeed, he's their political reporter. He he was there and he's he had some really funny tweets. Um, Trump, he said, gleefully narrates clashes between activists and security 
Press swarm with cameras, phones, supporters crowd around cheering. Surreal. They probably haven't seen much of this. I mean, yeah, I, I I've seen some of this because you know you see supporters and they have their their phones out and they're recording some of this. And he, he's attracted protesters because of things that he said. But so have other candidates. Yeah. I mean, Bernie Sanders had a microphone taken out of his hand right. during a rally by some Black Lives Hillary Matters. Hillary Clinton had a little backlash once. She had some people uh, heckle her a little bit. And then afterwards, she had a meeting. And she stood there and let the, the Black Lives Matter protester right. explain their point of view. And she gave them some... Uh, some points on you need to organize better because right now you're just loosely yeah. a bunch of people. If you organize and try to – the way this country works is through legislation. And she was kind of went through the, uh-huh. how government Co- Coaching works. them on – And they were – I don't know how open they were to that sort of a process. I think they want to disrupt more than they want to. Didn't, didn't she then take them to Chipotle? No, there wasn't a oh, – was I, that another story? That was another story. I'm getting my stories mixed up. <laughs> that was when she announced that she walks into a Chipotle with her glass sunglasses on. Uh, Listen to this one by McKay Coppins. He said, along with doing a play-by-play of the scuffles, Trump reportedly taunted the press for rushing to capture each flare-up on camera. At one point, he joked that he had staged a protester security fight just to get reporters to document the size of the crowd. In fact, I heard Trump has the largest crowds ever known to man. From the Donald Trump Twitter account? Is that where that came from? Okay. Mm -hmm. Trump has expanded his lead among Republicans since proposing that all Muslims be banned from traveling to the U.S. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Weird. He seems to keep doing better every time he says something inflammatory, which we learned last hour might be because you stoke fear. And when you stoke fear, you you tend to get a reaction. And he's hitting a nerve. Mm-hmm. There's people that have this concern. Other other interviews with Trump supporters that I've heard, they they ask him, what about this? And they go, well, you know, he has these other views, but I like how he's he's forceful. He yeah. doesn't back down. He's confident. I like that in my elected official, and that's why I'm supporting him. So it's not necessarily what he's saying. It's how he's saying yeah. it. He, and that's really part of the genius of the marketing arm that is Donald Trump. I mean, again, who's had more free press than Donald Trump? I heard somebody else explain it, that he's running as a uh, reality show contestant, where you win those shows by becoming popular, by getting people on your side to have confidence in you, to believe in you, and so you say things maybe they want to hear. Do you know who may want to run in 2020 because of his success? Who's that? Kardashians. They're going to run as a family. I hope not. No, they are. The Kardashian family. Well, Kanye already said he wants in. Oh, Kanye's for sure, right? Yeah. But I think Kim. I thought they separated the responsibilities of Secretary of State already. Oh, yeah. And National Secretary Security. of State, um, I think that was Kim Kardashian. Oh, I thought it was Bruce or, or Caitlyn or No, Bruce is. Bruce has got a whole other job there. Oh, okay. Bruce will be the DOJ. I don't know what Bruce will be. That's not going to work. The mom, what's the mom's name? Mom Kardashian? I'm not sure. You've just as the producer you've gone beyond my you, oh uh, yeah my knowledge here. The funny thing is when these mics go off, it's all Kardashian. <laughs> it is not. Yes, it is. I can't get you to be quiet. Kardashian and Star Wars. We when the mics ta- are on, you're we like, were just you're talking it. about the Supreme Court. We were. Yeah, and was, you went. That's a great topic. Get was somebody I listening on. to that? Yes, you were. 
or the Kardashian. Maybe who's going to be the Supreme Court justice? No, it wasn't that. Okay. The the new appointee. It wasn't that at all. <laughs> Anywho, hey, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Hey, today I don't know if you heard this. This is crazy. It seems like a bad idea to me. Chinese researchers unveil a brain powered car. Yeah, this didn't seem. The best of options. China's first mind-controlled car has been developed by researchers at Nankai University. The research team has spent two years bringing the mind-controlled vehicle to reality. It's a trap. It's a total trap. By wearing a brain signal reading equipment uh, or some brain signal reading equipment, a driver can control the car to go forward, backward, come to a stop, and both lock and unlock the vehicle, all without moving their hands or feet. They just hook up 16 sensors that capture EEG signals. <sighs> See, now, mo- there, there are cars out there now that if you have your, your key fob yeah. and you get close to the car, it'll unlock itself uh-huh. without you even doing anything. It'll just unlock the car so you can get, so you can get in and sit down. Good evening, Mr. Townsend. You can start the car just as long as you have the key fob in the car with you. The car will start because you're in proximity. May I warm the seat for you, Mr. Townsend? So what do we need? Yes, car, you may. Why do we have to hook this up to our brains? Is this the way? I mean, I get it. This is actually going to be really good for somebody that's disabled. Yes. That couldn't get around otherwise. I mean, I get that. What I worry about, back to the Kardashians, (laughs) are um, that other people that don't use their brain for anything else in the day Mm -hmm. now need to use it. Should there, be, should there be an IQ test? Yes. No. No? There'd be a lot of people in trouble. <laughs> but again, that's a – now we got to think. I mean in a way I guess if you couldn't – maybe you just need it to start your car. And then at every stop, the, the car has to make sure you're actually paying attention to driving or it will just turn off. Hmm. There you go. Then you have to stay focused. But the car would give you what? Some sort of mm-hmm. – Eye quiz or something. Well, the minute the you're screen. like the minute you're starting to think of like like cheese smothered French fries. Ooh, car stops. But what happens when you're in the middle of a freeway? Then you're dead. You are going to be roadkill. That, that's the evolutionary process, right? Yeah. Natural selection. But then you'd learn okay. to focus, stay awake. Right. You might be onto something. I don't know if you'd learn. Maybe everyone else would learn well, from your. Well, mistake. what would happen evolutionarily has been saying you will die out. Your non-thinking breed would die out. Huh. And the thinking breed would continue to live. Don't think that's going to work. That's not a good – That's, which not, is, that's those, not good public policy, Those Matt. that are mindful, those that can stay mindful and stay in their mind and in the presence, they will live. No. Those that should be dead will be dead. Wow. It sounds horrible, but I think the Chinese are onto something. So I, I imagine the process of culling the herd will be kind of difficult on society. Oh, yeah. And but we'll have – We're going to all lose some people we love. Wow. But we need to think of it as a whole. It's better for the whole. Man. The, the few mindless. This went to a dark place. Yeah. You thought it was just a story from China. I thought it was another option rather than having a self-driving car. <laughs> you plug your brain in nope. and drive it it's that way. It's now the no. way we call the herd. You're a monster. <laughs> I am. I don't know what it is. I think it's all this politics and stuff like that. Yeah, know. gets people down. No, because everyone's different. That's what we're talking about today. Emily Wapnick will be joining us. She um, she has a great TED talk talking about the fact that did you like did you know did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? No. Did anyone, when you were asked that did you think ah oh, geez? Well, you take those aptitude tests that wanted me to be either a garbage man or is that what yours wanted you to be or a forest ranger? 
Those wow. were the two. Yeah. I was like, really? Yeah, that's... and then they then they go. Oh, you could be a sanitation engineer, and I go, nah. So instead, you decided to work for the Matt Townsend Show. Well, you know. Then what were you told to be, based on your aptitudes? I don't remember. I was told to be the smartest man on earth. How's that working out for you? Not so good. I was told to be a uh, a paid clergy. Oh, that's right. You were talking about that yeah. yesterday. Paid clergy. You're yep. like, I'm in the wrong religion. My religion doesn't have a paid there clergy. There's no paid clergy. Great! So uh, anyway, Emily's going to talk to us today about the fact that maybe you don't have one calling. Maybe you're not this person that has this one thing you're supposed to do. Maybe you have multiple potential potentialities. And um, she's going to just walk us through the fact that there's room for all of us, people that have a lot of things they want to do. Instead of just the one thing, and it's hard because our jobs seem to only have, you know, you got to have that degree, that one degree, and yet you might be in five different places, and you could still add a lot of value. She's going to be teaching us the power of that, but before we get there, let's go to the the Renaissance man, Terry South, find out what's going on in the rest of the world. Terry? Oh, Renaissance man. Thanks, yep. Matt. The fifth Republican presidential debate tonight on CNN, live from Las Vegas, the undercard begins at 6 p.m. Eastern. The uh, big boys table, is that what you want to call it? That begins at 8.30 Eastern? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. These split, these split debates are kind of interesting. It, it is. Uh, I, I, we've spoken of this before. 69% of Americans say they have watched at least one of the TV it's debates. Amazing. Which is crazy. It's In great. 2008, that number was at 43. So more people are engaged. More people are paying attention. So there is a positive aspect to the circus <laughs> on some level. The Democrats will... Uh, Go at it again December 19th, which is a Saturday night. So if you are got nothing to do and no one to go shopping for, you can sit down and watch Hillary talk with two guys. Uh, Trump is up in two polls currently, 41% in a Monmouth University poll. A new ABC Washington Post poll has him up uh, 36 or 38% support. Both polls, Ted Cruz is in second place with around 15% support. So Trump in national polls is widening his lead on the rest of the field. This was interesting yesterday. Since investigators linked pro-Islamic state Facebook account to one of the San Bernardino shooters, there have been increased scrutiny over how the Department of Homeland Security incorporates social media into its vetting process of visa applicants like Tafshin Malik, the woman in the uh, San Bernardino shooting. Apparently until recently, they didn't factor into the decision about who they accept at all. Uh, previously, they, that was never it was never a factor. In the equation. Early 2014, Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson. This is according to uh, where did his name go? It was right here. ABC News consultant John Cohen, who previously served as an acting uh, Department of Homeland Security Undersecretary for Intelligence. He said that, home, that the current uh, the guy that was Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson declined to end a secret U.S. policy that barred immigration officials from reviewing the social media posts of foreign citizens seeking U.S. visas. It was primarily a, quest, a question of optics, Cohen told ABC News. There were concerns from a from a privacy and civil liberties perspective that while this was not illegal, that it would be viewed negati- negatively if it was disclosed publicly. Hmm. If, if when people were trying to get into the country to get a visa, that you looked at their social media to yeah. see if there were any red flags. Seems like that's a, a pretty... I mean, we do that for jobs. Yes. So That was my first response when I read this last night. I go, I, you, every job you I apply for... I read all of your social media before you got your job. And there's not much of it, so oh, good job. Oh, <laughs> weird. 
Hopefully it was You're good for into it. some weird An stuff. An anonymous source told the Wall Street Journal on Monday that the department is planning to expand the role of social media that it plays in the review process. Hmm. So they're not looking at social media. Well, Even though we, we know that terrorists are using social media at a heightened level to coordinate and, and get their message out, we're not looking at social media when people so try to get So this might be highlighting one of the problems of government is it's just hard to stay up with the times. And they did it for a public relations at least uh, apparently for public relations reasons, we didn't want this to look bad if it got out, that we were looking at people's Facebook yeah. and Twitter and Instagram, that kind of thing. Oh, wow. Which seems ridiculous. But that's what the, what's being reported. I guess, too, they didn't interview everyone face-to-face. No. Unless they had a reason to interview them. Yeah. Which is also... But they are saying if they do start having to vet social media, that it'll just extend the process that's long and laborious as is. Yeah. That'll just make it even worse, which, you know, that goes back to we need to reform our immigration system somehow. But this also is welcome to America. Yes. We, we're going to slow it down with some, with some bureaucracy. We're not just going to let you in the door. We have to, to vet you, make sure you're safe. A top Army commander on Monday ordered that Sergeant Bo Bergdahl face a court-martial on charges of desertion and endangering troops. The decision comes despite a recommendation from a lesser charge for the soldier who left his remote Afghanistan outpost in 2009, mm-hmm. prompting a deadly manhunt and his own five years of captivity with the Taliban. But now some people are – so it's desertion, but some are wondering if he's delusional. Yeah. Because he that, that, said he, he was like born. He was doing what born was doing. Yeah, he wanted to be like a secret agent of some kind. Yeah. Be a superhero. So that's kind of interesting. Um, the Star Wars had their big – Premiere last night in Los Angeles. The movie actually premieres oh. here in a couple days. Are we, are we talking Star Wars? We're moving on. A Texas seventh grader named Colton Southern uh, Southern was required to cover up his Star Wars T-shirt at school because administrators said it ran afoul of school policy banning symbols oriented towards violence. The shirt showed the stormtrooper holding a weapon alongside a large logo advertising the latest film in the science fiction series. Colton's father says the son had worn the T-shirt to school several times before without incident. And, and the father's like, we're talking about Star Wars. <laughs> this isn't violence. It's a movie. It's the most, you know, people are looking forward to this. It's everywhere. He wore a T-shirt. Now you kick him out of school? Wow. I mean, you don't. I mean, some things are sacred. Yeah. It's like religion. That and for some, he's, I, I thought you know if the T-shirt had a lightsaber on it, and then you kick him out because it's a weapon. You're like, really? Is is a lightsaber really it's a weapon? Real? I just I don't know. It was people jumping to. Uh, I guess the real message here is that the Star Wars movie comes out this week. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole other thing about you know no tolerance policies at schools. I think stuff. you you've yeah, actually Star Wars is coming out, but you've stirred the hornet's nest because you said a lightsaber isn't real. It's not real. Try telling that to half of your friends. <laughs> See how that goes. It's real. I did. <laughs> half of your friends will disagree, especially the ones like that have two buns on both sides of their head. Hey, we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, Emily Wapnick will be joining us and talking about multiple potentialites. People that don't just have one thing they like in life, one purpose, one job. The people that can't really decide what they want to be when they grow up because there's so many interesting things stick with us folks you may be a multi-potentialite this is the matt townsend show helping you find the good in the world we'll be right back Welcome back, everybody, 
to the Matt Townsend Show. What did you want to be when you were a kid? Did you want to become a firefighter, a doctor, or a power ranger? We have these dreams as kids, and for some of us, as we grow up, they change. They mix with other dreams, and sometimes we find ourselves being a fighter, firefighting, power ranging doctor. For some of us, there just isn't one true calling, and that's what our guest today, Emily Wapnick, is going to discuss with us. She's coined the term for the firefighting, power ranging doctors of the world. The term is multipotentialites, and she joins us now live from Oregon to teach us about this new term. Uh, Ms. Wapnick, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to have you. I loved uh, your TED Talk. Um, really, it's a, it's a weird dilemma, and you bring, a, you bring it up in your TED Talk, this, this issue of when you're really young, you know, three, four, five, everyone says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it, for some of us, it induces an amazing set of, uh, you know, amount of anxiety for us all the way through college, yeah. even into adulthood. What's going on? Why, why are some so easily able to answer that while others struggle? Yeah, um, there's a tremendous amount of pressure in our culture to really narrow our focus and pick one thing. You know, sort of this romanticized notion of the one true calling or, or destiny. Um, and that works better for some people than, than for others. Um, a lot of us, it turns out, have many interests and want to do a lot of different things. And so, yeah, people ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? And this question, at first, is kind of like this fun thing that you can like you can dream about all the possibilities. But as you get older, you really need to narrow it down. You have to get serious about it. You have to choose a major. Um, and that can be very anxiety-producing for many of us. And so, yeah, I have this, this term, multi-potentialite, uh, which is someone with many interests and creative pursuits. Um, and many multi-potentialites just feel like there's something wrong with us because we can't choose one thing. We can't stick with anything. There are just too many things we're excited about. Um, and we, we also feel like we're the only ones. And what I've realized through my work um, is that there, there are you know, thousands of us. I'm not sure exactly how many there are, but I get tons of emails and tweets from people who are like, oh, I, I thought this was just me. I mm. thought there was something wrong with me. And no, there are a lot of us. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually am one of them. And be, mm-hmm. because I, I always thought, but it's interesting because I always reverse engineered this. I always thought there was no, I, I kind of knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to be someone that, that helped people work better together and talk better together. But there was never a job for that. So I kind of tried therapy out. I tried law out, looking into that for a while. Yeah. But but I kept I just kind of kept going. But really, what it was is I loved communications. I loved broadcasting, mm-hmm. so I got a degree in that. I loved human development, got a degree in that. Loved conflict resolution. Okay. But I, I thought it, I was just I didn't realize though what I was kind of doing. I guess is just finding what I loved, and then mm-hmm. kind of made it into my job, my existence, my my purpose. Yeah, and I think that's the key is identifying sort of these underlying themes in the various things that you enjoy. And, you know, I mean, you identified a few of them right there, communications, human development. Um, Instead of picking, like, a medium Mm -hmm. or, like, a specific role that, you know, is who who you think you you are, who you think you should be, um, I think that you end up with a career that's a lot more aligned with your 
many different passions and you know your many the the your different skills if you identify some of those underlying traits those underlying um the, the whys you know like the big things that drive you to your various passions and you try and integrate those into your career is it i mean i guess we used to think i guess we're strange though aren't we like how come everyone else i have brothers in laws that uh-huh. both of them knew they wanted to be doctors really young yeah. their dad was a doctor and i'm like Oh man, how do you know that? You're only like nine. Yeah. But yeah, and I think most multi-potentialists feel jealous of people who are just naturally oriented towards specializing, um, and and our culture really, really glamorizes that that path. And there, are, I mean, there are a lot of really um, successful multi-potentialists, but we don't really talk about it. We don't really hold them up and be like, oh, this person has, has a very varied career. They do a lot of different things. They're maybe like entrepreneurial. They, you know, um, mm-hmm. we don't really look at the world that way yet. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, it's an interesting word you, you call it, specialist. Like, we, we do glamorize our specialists. Like, the child that is a great singer that, you know, can maybe do that one thing and that's what he loves and or... It, or the you know the the baseball player the kind of the athlete, why, why is that? Why do you think that is our ideal instead of being kind of the Renaissance man or woman? Yeah, um, I think there's a historical component there. I think it really stems from the Industrial Revolution um, because you know back then everyone needed to specialize because that that was how we were the most efficient. You know that was how our industry flourished um, with everyone doing one really narrow thing. And then this model, um, through globalization and such, it, it got really got brought to our educational systems, and um, you know, and you now the job market, it, things are changing right now. But but I feel like for a long time, it was really about developing a very narrow skill set and meeting a niche at a company, and you know, just doing that. And of course now because of new technology and because of the economy and just having to diversify your skill set. Um, there are a lot, the world is sort of crying out for multi-potentialites more and more, and it's becoming more of a strength, I think, uh, in the 21st century. Well, and um, it seems like, and I think you brought this up in your talk, that we we live in a much more complicated world that mm-hmm. might demand um, – more of a diverse approach to solutions to fix this world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, problems are, are very multifaceted. Like some of the big problems in the world right now are, you know, so you can't just have a background in, in one specialized area and expect to be able to tackle them effectively. I think some of the most thoughtful solutions to problems come when you integrate several fields together, when you can draw from many different areas and kind of have that broader perspective and um, really understand how things are going to affect other sectors and how, you know, how things come together and um, interact. I mean, that's even how we do our medicine, right? I mean, our medicine, we even break down into our specialties where it seems like some of our problems are more systemic than specialized. Mm-hmm. And yet, yeah. and yet, our doctors are looking at, you know, the heart, not the whole being, and the diet, and the. Right. Interesting. Is it? Um, yeah. Is is there a? It seems like is there a con to being a multipotentialite? <laughs> I mean, it seems like there's there some pros. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's got to <laughs> be some cons here. Yeah, I, 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 
for them as challenges rather than cons because I think that um, there are things you need to address and really there aren't that many resources available yet for multi-potentialites. It's one of the things I'm working on, one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, there are a lot of career books for specialists. There are a lot of, you know, career counselors that will give you a test and, and help you kind of narrow in your focus and figure out the one or two careers that you could be really great at. Uh, but there aren't there isn't that much for, for multi-potentialites yet. Um, some of the big challenges, I mean, the biggest one tends to be, how do I make a living as a multi-potentialite? Um, and really that's about finding or creating a career that provides you with variety. Hmm. Um, and that's, you know, easier said than done. Um, but, but that's a big one. And then there's sort of the productivity challenges of, okay, if I have all these different projects, how am I going to focus on many of them and make progress on them? Um, is there a limited number that I could have on my plate at one given time? Like, what, what is that right amount for me? Um, and then there are some of the kind of deeper emotional issues and challenges that come up just from growing up in a really specialist-oriented society. A lot of people have trouble with, uh, you know, parents and friends who don't understand, don't understand why you can't just pick something and stick with it. Um, a lot of those fears and like, how am I going to compete with a, with a specialist and those sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, yeah, cause you're always kind of a fish out of water, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, think it, so that if you can, if you can link up with other people who are also fishes out of water, um, that, uh, that, that's been one of my favorite strategies. Yeah. I mean, multi-potentialites multi, multi unite. It's, uh, is that what you're trying to do on your website? You have a great website called puttylike.com, puttylike.com. And it, it is a place, it seems like, where you're trying to create a, a resource where people can go and, and learn about, you know, these different challenges for, for people that, that want a broader, you know, brush of life. Um, but you also said the resources are are pretty they're pretty scarce. Is is it? Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you identify if you are a multi potentialite? Do you do you have a questionnaire? How do you what do you how do you identify it? My sense is that if someone's asking that question, they're probably a multi potentialite. Hmm. Um, I think you know I, I like to keep it. I like to keep the definition very broad. So if you feel as though you don't just have a singular calling in life, um, you're probably a multi-potentialite. There are many different ways to be one. Some people like having 20 different projects on their plate at one given time. Other people move through their interests more sequentially, so one after the next after the next. Uh, and then it's a spectrum, so you can land anywhere on that spectrum. Um, yeah, I just, you know, I don't... I don't feel like it's very productive to worry, like, am I a multi-potentialite? Am I not yeah. a multi-potentialite? Yeah. Uh, you know. If it, if it <laughs> so feels, if, if it, it feels, yeah, if it feels good, yeah. go with it. Exactly, yeah. No, I like that. And yeah, I created I created Putty Like just as a resource, information, um, discussion, connection, just bringing, bringing the multi-potentialite community together. Mm. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're we're speaking with Emily Wapnick from the website puttylike.com, and she's teaching us about this this concept of being a multi-potentialite, um, multiple potentials. You don't have to just think that you only have one purpose, one calling in life. 
there might be multiple things that you love, that you're good at, that you want to experience and go learn, and you can still bring that learning back into your life, and it can benefit all parts of your life. So uh, it's, it's an interesting concept. Um, instead of just being a specialist, maybe go specialize in many things. Um, we'll take a break, folks. Come back, continue this interesting discussion. More with Emily Wapnick when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. everybody to the Matt Townsend show. Hey, we are talking about the fact that uh, some people don't just have that feeling of that one calling, that one job, that one thing they have to do and go get that, you know, go grab that challenge by the neck. Um, Some of us just are exploring our way through life and we're finding things we like and we're finding strengths that we have, we're finding values we appreciate, and we're putting it together and then might emerge possibly a job. Um, We don't always have to have that romanticized version that there's just that one thing you're supposed to go be. You're supposed to go be a doctor. Anyway, joining us uh, and who is basically leading the entire exploration of the multi-potentialites, she invented the term. Emily Wapnick is her name. And if you go to her website, puttylike.com, you can learn more about um, this simple concept of the fact that you have multiple potential, uh, multiple potentials, multiple gifts, multiple strengths, and you might want to approach your world from all of those strengths, not just one Emily, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me again. <laughs> you bet. This is, um, I think, a really powerful idea. I think you you're, you hit on something, and I know on your blog you talk about it too. I mean, our identity is so deeply connected with what we do. But yeah. for a lot of people that don't have this overt thing they do, they have a lot of things they like to do. It might be um, kind of frustrating or maybe even induce some anxiety or depression by thinking that they're strange. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that is kind of a bigger problem that we really seem to get our value as a human from what we do for money. Um, And it definitely is more of an issue for multi-potentialists who don't feel like they have just that, just that one thing. And you can, you know, you can run into the situation where you have all these identity crises because you think you found the thing that you are, like your one true calling, and then at some point you start to lose interest, you sort of feel like you've got what you came for, you become interested in something else, and suddenly you're like, who am I? But, mm. you know, like, I don't know who I am anymore. And um, that is, I mean, that's happened to me a few times in my life, and I think it's it's really common if you don't realize that you're a multi-potentialite and that it's actually healthy for you to move on to the next thing and for you to you know, follow your curiosity and explore. Yeah. And it's like sometimes we feel like we're in a hurry. We need to get into school, get our degree, mm-hmm. then go make our living. Um, 
and and then you know I was I I was in sales for a while because I realized that's like one of the only places you know I could make money in this one company and so but then I I didn't want to do that so I got into training and I mean eventually it just led me to five different jobs which mm-hmm. led me to my ideal kind of life and you make a point in your um TED talk that none of these experiences are wasted you know, even if I didn't follow down the vein of something I thought I would like, it's not wasted. And and why? Why why isn't two years, you know, being a working at a coffee shop, um, a waste? Yeah. Well, maybe you learn a lot about customer service while you're working at that that coffee shop, and that's a transferable skill that you can use in in other fields. Um, I think we we have this idea that fields work in, in this sort of linear fashion that we should move through life linearly. You study something and then you do one of the jobs that's associated with that thing you studied. So if you're, you know, if you're in architecture school, you're going to be an architect. If you're studying music, you're going to be a musician or maybe a music teacher. If you're in law school, you're going to be a lawyer. But often multi-potentialites apply the skills that we acquire not just linearly, but but laterally. We move, in, move into a completely different field and bring those skills in in ways that we hadn't anticipated. So I, I went to law school. Um, I have a law degree, but I'm not a lawyer. But I still use those skills often. Yeah. I think that, you know, I often give law school credit for making me a better writer. I feel like I'm better at making arguments now. So I use that in my blog posts and in my writing a lot. Um, if I, I'm not great at contracts, but you know, I can kind mm-hmm. of like navigate my way through the contract if, when that comes up. Um, and same with, you know, my background in music. Sometimes I'll be, and, and film for that matter, I'll be making a video or, um, you know, recording something in my business or in some other project, and those skills will will be useful there too. So, I think people often feel like, oh, I spent two years studying this thing, and it was a waste of time. But you never know how those skills might be useful in a completely different realm. Um, yeah. In a way that you just you hadn't thought of. So the skill, so it's really kind of a skills focus versus a job focus or a career focus. Aggregate the skills, aggregate your strengths, Mm -hmm. what you're passionate about, and then put it together in something that works. Yeah, and I think that when you have that beautiful, um, like, smoosh of skill, you know, that project or that career that allows you to bring together many different skills and many of your areas of, of interest, that, that feels really rewarding. Uh, and some people have that, like, one dream job that lets them do lots of different things, and other people piece it together by having a few different jobs that let them use different skills and different parts of their brain. Um, there are several ways of doing it, but, but when you have a life that, that allows you to, to do many different things and wear many different hats and it has that variety, it feels really, really good as a mm-hmm. multi-potentialist. And... I mean, I guess the greatest news, Emily, is just that you're, as you bring this up, is that there's hope because there's probably a lot of college students. I mean, I have high school kids that are looking at me like, I don't know what I want to do. And I have college kids that are thinking, Ugh, I don't want to be a therapist, I don't, but I want to do part of it, but I don't want to do this part of it. And um, so there is hope, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, now more than ever, people are are kind of inventing job titles. Uh, I think that 
technology is making this more and more possible. And we're going to see over the next 10, 20 years that the a lot of the jobs that, that you know, quote-unquote millennials are, are doing have been invented by them and um, are kind of amalgamations of previous roles and just, yeah, I think that people are starting to bring things together in really innovative and interesting ways. Hmm. And I guess a role that we all ought to have as parents, as teachers, educators, um, is be careful that we don't just brand it maybe an either or, either get a job or you're lazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, I don't know if that dichotomy is, is even relevant anymore. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's not just one role anymore, is there? Mm-mm. Well, in technology, like I've, I've said it on the show before, I have a son that can love music, can actually make the music, and can mix mm-hmm. the music, and can make videos for YouTube about the music, and then sell the music, and he yeah. can do it all in his bedroom. And he never has yeah, to leave. <laughs> and I think, oh, boy. But but he's using his – but then what's interesting, he gets overwhelmed because he's not a full engineer, audio engineer yet, and he's not a full – you know, um, he's not a, a musician quite fully yet, and he's not a videographer yet, but he knows he has those those gifts, those abilities. And sure. so we grow it out. Yeah, yeah. And I would argue that by doing it himself – I mean I'm, I'm a fan of education for sure, but um, – you know, there's no harm in kind of exploring the stuff yourself and learning by, you know, tinkering and trying things out. And, and yeah, you're right. You know, they're, they're just the gatekeepers don't have nearly as much power anymore. So if you're a musician, you, you don't need a record label. If you're an artist, you, do, you don't need galleries to accept your work in order to make a living. Um, and if you're a writer, you can self-publish. There are all these new avenues available um, thanks to the technology and, and digital democratization. Mm. It's, it's, there's so much. I feel like we've always started to tap into what, what's possible. What do you see happening um, on your website on puttylike.com? I, I know you're big into having a community there where people can, can go and identify and, and talk to each other. I mean, w- what are the conversations you're hearing? What, what, what differences do you see that that having the ability to maybe go communicate with other multi-potentialites, what does that do? I think it makes people a lot more confident. Um, some people grow up in an environment where they just don't know any other multi-potentialites, and they've always felt weird or, you know, they, they just haven't gotten much support. So it definitely helps people feel a little bit more confident in their multi-potentiality and being multi-potentialites. It also helps people like really get the tools to turn this into a lifestyle and into a career. If you can talk to other people who have done it, other people who understand what you're going through, you know, challenges like how do I write up a resume or um, how do I come up with a business idea that doesn't feel too narrow but also makes sense to potential customers. Um, So, yeah, a lot of those sorts of things. And then... uh, like I mentioned earlier, the productivity stuff, like how do I fit in all my different projects? So just, yeah, getting that, that feedback, that support. Um, we also have, we call them huddles. They're like group brainstorms on Google Hangouts where we get into, you know, an online room, so to speak, and um, people talk about different projects they're working on and um, 
where they might be stuck. And um, so, yeah, we, we really try and provide people with support and link people up with one another. We also see collaborations. There are some really great um, barter exchanges and projects that have come out of the Putty Tribe and just people, multi-potentialists from around the world, linking up and filling out each other's skill sets and creating things. It's, it's pretty neat. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And really, for anybody that instead instead of just sitting in your room wondering why you're not like everyone else, it might be better that we uh, go find a resource like Putty Tri- the Putty Tribe or PuttyLike.com to – to shake to shake shake ourselves out a little bit and understand what we do have to offer. I guess in the end, as we wrap it up, Emily, um, we appreciate you because to me, anytime you can define something like this that does make people feel it could make us feel like we're not as valuable. But I love your argument that we need all we need every voice in the pot, and uh, whether you're a multi potentialite or you know. Just the average Joe that's got your love of your one job, it's, we need everybody's voice, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I make this point in my TED Talk that um, some of the best teams are comprised of a, of a specialist and a multi-potentialite working together. You know, it's that sort of the Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak combo. One person is able to go deep and implement yeah. ideas while the other person can be kind of more of a visionary role and, and bring in different ideas. And, oh, that's cool. Um, so we, we do. We need both. We need we need everyone, every, you know, the way that we all, we're all different. We all think differently. And, um, yeah, it's important to kind of bring that out. Stir the pot, stir the pot. Emily Wapnick, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work there at puttylike.com. Everybody go check out that website. It really, um, if you, if you have somebody that feels like they're just not quite mainstream, like everyone else, it's a perfect place to, to have them go start to explore their multi-potentialities. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Isn't that an interesting idea of uh, putting together the fact that maybe you're just somebody who loves a, a variety of different things? I mean, everyone loves, you know, has different hobbies, different um, strengths and abilities. But when it comes to your living and making a living, we get so caught up in that the only one true blue avenue to a healthy career is through your school. And are we shortchanging all of the other things that that you might learn? Uh, I have a son that um, really basically wants to be maybe a therapist, a, a psychotherapist, but he wants to help people with anxiety um, right now. That's kind of what he's thinking, and and how to you know overcome the brain and our tendencies of the brain. But he needs a job, and so there's a lot of his friends are going out and doing sales jobs door-to-door. They're doing telemarketing jobs, and he really doesn't want to do that. Uh, I'm not a salesperson. Um, but, you know, so he probably won't. But then I think back, man, what I, I had a sales job, and I didn't love it. I actually didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. But... Uh, I did it for about a year or two, 
And every time I'd go talk to my boss about how bad I didn't like it, he'd say, well, everything you do is sales, right? I mean, if you ever had a client that you wanted to coach and get them to do better, you'd have to sell them to do better. They have to believe you and trust what you're saying. And Or if you want someone to pay you to go do something for them. So maybe there's value in just allowing your kids to explore their jobs. And a lot of us as parents maybe over-micromanage what our kids are doing, but maybe we ought to just let them – if they want to work at the snow shack serving snow cones because it's really social, but you'd rather that they go work in this one thing, maybe let them do it. I mean, I guess there's a point where you might want to start building a resume. But when they're younger, let them explore and let them do what they want to do and also hold up for them the fact that we don't need everyone to say the exact same thing and be the exact same way. You are different. So – you know, be okay being a little bit different and use your differences to create more value. Interesting stuff, huh? The uh, multi-potentialite. Go to that website. Uh, really, truly, I think it's there's there's a lot of power uh, when you think about it. Um, puttylike.com is the website. We'll take a break. It's hour number two. We'll come back, wrap up our third hour. Man, got a lot of stuff to get to. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Uh, Today, um, you know, we're going to be talking with Dr. Uh, Kenneth Worthy, we've had him on the show before. He he's if, if you've ever thought, okay, I need to go green, I need to go healthier, I need to recycle more. This is your guy. He has a blog on psychology today called "The Green Mind: Finding the Human Place in Nature." And we've talked about recycling, and recycling is a great thing, right? Except for the fact that you know it doesn't necessarily overcome consumerism. You can recycle all you want. But recycling takes a lot of energy that it's not even paying for. So the best way to take care of Mother Earth might not be recycling alone. It might be consuming less. So as the holiday season comes around, maybe what you ought to be focusing on this holiday is you're consuming. Just back it down a bit. Rack her down. Or... Get a hoverboard that's going to explode anyway. <laughs> Either way. Oh, no, because that would just create more garbage. Yes, there'd be more garbage. It, it's an interesting approach. Yeah. Because usually people hear about recycling and they're like, oh, uh, seriously, bleh. this again? Bleh. But but his idea is you don't necessarily need all the stuff to begin with. Right. You could find a different way or maybe cut back or look at what you're you're purchasing. Like, how much of that am I actually going to use? Right. And I think in the end, one of the things that um, I, I'm wanting to do – is you know I I wanted I wanted save money and I'll save more money if I would just simply not go buy. Yeah. But my kids have these expectations that Santa Claus is coming. Your job is to manage those. Yeah, that's where we failed. 
You need to set yourself up as the kind of the in-between negotiator between the kid and Santa Claus. Well, that was what the elf on the shelf was for. See, you 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 can't farm that out. It no. has to be you. No, and that elf has got an attitude. Hey, uh, speaking of attitudes. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come we get one of these a day now. Well, I like this. It's like it's like a feature. Yeah, it's uh, today we're talking about the GOP um, beatdown tonight. Okay, so bad boys and one girl. You've kind of oversold a Republican debate. I want it to be exciting, and it'll be a bunch of people standing at podiums talking about <laughs> politics. Yeah. Occasionally, might maybe a little dig here and there. A, l- a little dig. In fact, we do have some audio of some of uh, the last debate. Me, 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 me. Those are kind of how they sound. Me, me. At times. Me, me, me. Sounds very selfish. No, I, was, I hit the bad boys button because I want um, burglary suspect. We're here to give coaching advice. Oh, okay. And I don't want to just coach the healthy, the people that never commit crimes. I also want to coach it's like you're the leaving, criminals. You're leaving out the criminals. I feel like we always leave out the criminals right. and we don't teach them how to be better. They are a subsection of society that right. needs to be recognized. So that is the most popular demographic on the show. Criminals. Yeah. Oh, for criminals sure. Criminals in prison in the Utah State Legislature. No. Utah State Penitentiary. Oh, yeah. And the, and the legislature. Yeah. <laughs> he almost tossed in politicians as yeah. criminals. No, Careful. Hey, 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 hey. Sorry. No, no Freudian slips here. Slip speak of the, the truth. Um, no, but here's a little just a little advice, a little coaching advice for any burglary um, suspects. Um, if you're going to if you're going to commit a crime of any sort, really, it doesn't have to just be burglary. Don't wear a sweatshirt with your name stenciled on it. That's a good tip. You know what I mean? Yeah, you may not think of that as you walk out the door with your uh, name on your shirt. What shirt should I wear to rob this bank? Don't wear the one. And if you work, let's say at a gas station. Where you have your name on your shirt, if you have a name tag, a name, mm. a name badge, maybe take it off. I take it off, yeah, or just leave it. Don't leave. Don't wear your high school letterman's jacket with your name, Mitch. But what if you wore somebody else's jacket? Yeah, you could wear somebody else's. Yeah, for sure. In fact, Ben, can I borrow your jacket tonight? I just have this really important thing I've got to do. Yeah, for sure. Police say a suspect had his first name stenciled on a sweatshirt that he wore while breaking into the Western Pennsylvania Taxi Company, where he used to work, by the way. Hmm. Isn't that Jimmy? Wait a second. Jimmy, is that you? I know that guy. That's why 26-year-old Joshua Jording of Latrobe faces preliminary hearing on burglary, theft, and related charges uh, on December 14th, state police security video showed the suspect wearing a shirt with the name Josh on it. Oops. Mm. The uh, They searched Jording's home and found that shirt. Darn it. Mom, I told you to wash my shirt. <laughs> anyway, he uh, the guy got away with they found the they found the shirt. They found two guns, two smartphones taken during the burglary on December 2nd. You can't take smartphones. No, they they can track you. Once you get the smartphone, unless you really know what you're doing, yeah, there's no way to actually use the phone. They lock it out or they just erase it and it turns into a brick. Ugh. So it's almost – Just leave the phone. Unless you're really technically advanced and have the software to get around that, mm-hmm. which most people won't, it's kind of just leave the smartphone. Or if you want to ruin someone's life, take their phone. Then throw it away. Don't keep it. Police uh, – this may be the cause of the whole thing. Police found um, marijuana and drug paraphernalia. Okay. 
during the search. Hmm. Hmm. Did he have a like a license or a medical card or something for that? Um, yeah, probably not. Okay. Uh, Jording, by the way, is free on bond, and he is catching up. He's smartening up a bit. Listen to ooh, this. Ooh. He didn't immediately respond to a Facebook message from the Associated Press. Nice. Smart. Nice. Smart. So well, that's the uh, bad boys coaching section of the day. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come there's actually two things there. One, don't wear a T-shirt or yeah, shirt with, with your, your name, name on it. it. And two, probably don't try to break into a place where the people know who yeah. you are. Hey, is that you, Josh? They may already have your address, phone number, work yeah. history. And they've seen the shirt before. Yeah. It's... If you're going to rob a place you've worked, wear a different shirt. It'd be like me wearing my BYU broadcasting jacket yeah. to rob BYU broadcasting. These microphones are nice, though. I can see how you're tempted. I'm so tempted. <laughs> I want one of these at my home. I wouldn't keep the mic flag <laughs> on the microphone, though. Yeah, no. not Don't do that. Hey, uh, let's get to the headlines. Find out what else is going on around the world. Terry? Thanks, Matt. The Los Angeles Unified School District closed all schools this morning due to a credible terror threat that officials told KTLA they received. A bomb threat was called in to a district board member. During a press conference, school district officials said that out of abundance of caution, the entire district has been closed after an electronic threat was sent to authorities. Uh, officials said they plan to search a uh, search operation of all the Los Angeles Unified School District schools. More than 900 buildings will be searched. There are currently 700,000 students that have a free day now because of a bomb threat. That's uh, a mass of humanity wow. that's now free. And that's a lot of parents that can't go to work. Yeah, this is uh, causing <sighs> a lot of distraction today. Young voters are flocking to Hillary Clinton and Marco Rubio in equal droves, according to a national NBC Wall Street Journal poll released on Monday. The results reveal Rubio ties Clinton for the youth vote 45 to 45 percent. Young voters are famously difficult demographic to motivate to vote. And as uh, Vox.com points out, since Democrats are gambling their future on the natural affinity with young voters, they ought to be paying attention to the findings now. Notably, young women have been bailing on Clinton's campaign in favor of Bernie Sanders, while Marco Rubio appears to other young voters with his youth, immigrant immigrant background, and calls for change. Bernie. So Bernie's catching some of the... He's got that. But Bernie sends out that vibe. Kind of that, you know, that, you know. Yeah. That Bernie vibe. The Bernie vibe. I don't know what to, to see call it. How you're trying to finish that. I, <laughs> I, don't, know. I don't know. What vibe is Bernie giving oh, out? You know. You know. <laughs> Crazy scientist vibe. He's got that <laughs> hair going everywhere. A former assistant high school football coach has pled guilty to a, uh, assault for an attack on a, in a on a game referee by two of his players. Remember the video yeah. we saw in Texas? Oh, yeah. He pled guilty. The, 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 originally, the players said their coach told them to do it. The coach said, I didn't say that. I don't know what they're talking but about. But he's, he's pled guilty. It was in uh, a John Jay High School in San Antonio. Mac Breed, former assistant coach, pled guilty to the misdemeanor charge on Monday. Uh, county court law, at law judge, uh, judge Linda Bayless sentenced him to 18 months of probation, fined him $1,500, and ordered him to serve 120 hours of community service and pay restitution to the referee. Mm. Burnett County attorney says uh, Breed must also forfeit his Texas teaching certificate permanently and attend anger management sessions. The two players hit the ref during a September 4th game. They said they did so at Breed's direction, but Breed denied originally denied the allegation. It sounds like there was a very, like, the ref said what? Because yeah. there was something that the officials said, and the players came back to the sidelines or something like that, and the coach 
said, you know what we need to do? We need to make him not yeah. part of this game or something. Make him pay. I think what the coach was meaning was we need to play beyond the officials, not let them dictate to us how we play our game. Ah. And maybe some players misconstrued so what the guy said. So you want me to said. take his knees out? <laughs> no, no, it, no, no, no. It turned into this blindside hit oh. from two players. Yeah, that was bad. And so the, the coach acknowledged that he may have motivated a attack on fields. Oh, boy. One month after, members of the University of Missouri football team said that then-President Tim Wolf wasn't taking action regarding racist incidents on campus, and they said they wouldn't play until he stepped down. A Republican member of the Missouri House of Representatives has proposed a bill that would take scholarships away from college athletes who refuse to play for non-medical issues. The pre-filled bill states that any college athlete who calls inside supports or participates in any strike or or, uh, concerted refusal to play a scheduled game shall have his or her scholarship revoked. It also says any member of a coaching staff who encourages or enables a college athlete to engage in such behavior would be banned under the bill. They shall be fined or his or her institution of employment. So the hmm. fines be attached that way. The sponsor, Rick Braddon, wants the bill to be enacted by August 2016 before the next school year begins. Wow. So no more protests. No more protests for don't, you. Don't get in the way of our football games. Yeah. Boy. Okay. What do you think? Do you think that'll fly? No. No? Okay. Not in the end. Um, and a New Orleans congregation called Vintage Church has been hit with two criminal summons alleging that the church's Sunday services are too loud. <laughs> the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office has repeatedly visited the tent where the church currently operates while their building is under construction, asking that service to be quieter than 60 decibels. Do you know what 60 decibels equal, is equal to? Like this. Yes, it's, a, it's norm, oh, actually a normal conversation or an air conditioning unit. Wow, really? Yeah. So, so that, they can't. They're, they've got choirs. They've got drums. They've got guitars. They said the Vintage Church has launched a lawsuit against the sheriff in response, noting that the sheriff has admitted that there is no law actually on the books dictating a sound level of 60 decibels. It's their religion. The congregation of several hundred has already pared down its worship to a few acoustic, acoustic instruments. It attempts to be quieter. <laughs> so the church is too loud. Oh, man. In New Orleans. Which, wow. you know, do you think people are good with music and everything yeah. should be fine? But apparently it's too loud See, Sunday mornings. See, people don't – church attendance is going down because we have to drop the decibels. Anyway, interesting stuff, interesting news. Hey, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Kenneth Worthy is going to be joining us. Um, he has the great blog on psychology today called The Green Mind. Uh, and he's a Ph.D., uh, is going to be teaching us, giving us some insight about – consumerism and uh, you know we're all going to be going out to spend and get anxious to go buy all these presents but what you might want to do instead is think about a few things before you do what do people really need really Uh, what do they not need any more of and what does mother earth what's she begging from us for this holiday season stick with us folks this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go Take a look back, everybody. It is. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Which means, you know, all the holiday sales, Christmas promotions. It's tempting to hit the stores and shop till you drop, isn't it? Thinking of every relative and co-worker you've come in contact with, your your kids' teachers... You got to go out and buy all of these Christmas gifts 
and that list keeps getting longer and longer. It is a daunting task to find the perfect gift for each person. But uh, you know what? Maybe there's more we can do than just gift buying and gift giving um, at this time of year. In fact, maybe our gift giving may be doing more harm than we actually know of. Environmental history and philosophy professor Kenneth Worthy says having to buy so many gifts makes it difficult to invest time and energy needed to make thoughtful decisions about what people really want and need and uh, will actually be able to use. He's returning to the show today to help us kind of sort through how uh, our harmful our consumerism can be during this holiday season, especially how harmful it can be to uh, Mother Earth. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Worthy, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thank you, Matt. It's really great to be back with you. Great having you. And I wanted to talk to you about this since the last time we talked. I mean, the big season's up here, right? We're lined up. Everyone's trying to hit the stores. And we just buy, buy, buy. And it sounds like a bad song. (laughs) Bye, bye, bye. Um, But in the end, the problem may be um, we try to conserve. We try to take care of uh, recycling all of the presents and the gifts and all these things. But in the end, the real the real enemy to uh, the, the the earth might be just all the consumerism. Yeah, and it's it's kind of in normal life the whole rest of the year our consumerism is kind of cover covers up the uh, the damages associated with it, and there are environmental harms and also social harms to a lot of the the stuff we buy. And but at Christmas it gets doubly covered up. Because, you know, um, our feelings of love for our friends and our family go along with that consumerism and get mixed up with it. Mm. And yeah. In some senses, it was kind of genius for sort of the industrial society to kind of package that consumerism into, um, into our relationships. And so we end up, you know, going all out and Christmas is obviously a bit such a huge time of year for for commerce right and, and that's such an interesting point that i mean we want to we love our kids we love our family the gifts are such a big part of christmas and yet we may be tying our love to the gift instead of to the thoughtfulness of it um or you know the relationship or the connection to the person that's right and that it's kind of ironic because what happens around Christmas is, you know, studies have shown that there's a lot of anxiety around Christmas because, you know, parents aren't, they want to make sure they get what they can for their kids. Sometimes they can't afford it. Um, sometimes they're not sure exactly what their kids want. They might not know what's popular at the time. There's all, and, and just even if it's not your kids, it could be friends of yours that you, you really don't know exactly what they want or need. And so there's a lot of anxiety, actually, around all of this gift-giving. And the, in some senses, that's the symptom of consumerism getting in, to, in the way of what should really be going on. You know, there are multiple possible sources of gift-giving around Christmas historically, but, you know, it's probably mostly originating from the Magi bringing gifts to Jesus, right. to the baby Jesus. And... Um, it was to show love and respect and adoration, etc. It wasn't to enrich Jesus mm-hmm. or to give Jesus the latest, yeah. although there was gold in there. So that yeah. kind of makes me um, question uh, that <laughs> that presumption. But, um, you know, 
the way in which we've really um, boosted it, especially over the last century, have really boosted uh, gift giving to be so it's almost obsessive is really it has a psychological downside to it and it certainly has an environmental downside to it you know and it's kind of almost seems like a bummer to remind people of this but you know you buy something and there's what almost whatever you buy has um, some environmental damage associated with it and often some human rights damages um, I was just uh, reading again about, you know, sweatshops in South Asia that are making our clothing, and some of those people are working 12 or 14 hours a day right. under very bad conditions, so we can have cheap stuff, uh, inexpensive clothing and other stuff, and, you know, that basically just leads us to buy more. I mean, it's if we could just focus on buying less and making it more meaningful stuff, that would be really, really good for both our relationships and the environment. No, I think that's powerful. And I mean, it, like we talked about last time when you were on um, about recycling, we, we're also proud of the fact that we have a recycling bin, but we don't know, we don't know the fa- all the facts about recycling. I mean, I just sit there and I think of how, many, how much more garbage I end up throwing away every Christmas simply because of the wrapping because of the boxes, because of all of the packaging. And um, and then I, I think, oh, but I'll just re- put it all in the recycle bin. But again, yeah. the energy used to take care of the recycling is, is, um, is not how we're going to get ahead here because we're still using more energy to recycle than the recycling is benefiting us. Yeah. Even if everything got recycled, we would be – behind yeah we'd still be doing lots so of environmental it's about damage. turning off the front end i guess more of the consumerism and to do that we've and we've built an economy around it right we keep trying to grow the economy around this consumerism kind of model what do we um what are some things that you would suggest we could do for the holiday season that that might end up being a really great gift a great lesson for our family and might help us maybe alter the the spirit of Christmas from a, a consumer model to more of just a, a service, a giving, a giving model? Well, that's a great question. You know, there's a whole bunch of different things we can do in all, on many different levels, and it starts with maybe working to tone down expectations a little bit instead of everybody trying to out-compete each other and buy more gifts or more expensive things, et cetera, maybe we can kind of tone down our expectations and practices a little bit. But the main thing, I think, especially, and this will help reduce anxiety around the holidays, is to start talking about people about what they like and what they need and being kind of more observant about people. Because sometimes we forget that the best gift is something that shows that we understand who that other person Mm. is. Yeah. And if we, and every Every one of us has received something who, who celebrates Christmas, I should say. I don't want to universalize this. But every one of us who has received something around Christmas, um, that kind of feels awkward because it's something that you just don't like for some reason. <laughs> right. Or it's just not your taste or it's something you really don't need. You already have four of them and you only need one. 
or something like that. Yeah. And so if people could just start to, and it may be late right now for some people, although some, a lot of shopping is going to happen. Not for me. No, I'm, I'm way ahead still because I've got yeah. a lot of shopping to do. Yeah. But like what you're so, saying is don't, don't, we don't have to, if I actually think about what this person loves, what they want, what they actually need, I might not just throw stuff at them so they have a gift that wasn't thought out that they'll never use, but it's just now waste. Yeah, and it takes energy in our minds to think this through. But, you know, that's what people really love when you've been thinking about them and the gift shows it, a thoughtful gift. Hmm. And so that can be great because you might get them something that they really want or need rather than something that's wasted. And I, I don't know if I mentioned last time I was on, probably not, but the you know, a tiny fraction of Christmas gifts are used more than, you know, a week in a, you know, after right. Christmas. Right. So most, uh, like, the large majority of Christmas gifts just don't get used. They basically, and some people have gone around and looked at people's trash, and they find lots and lots of Christmas presents in the trash in the weeks after Christmas. Right. Um, some even unwrapped. I mean, still wrapped. And so if people can focus on what people need, and, and there are other things we can do, you know, instead of maybe assuming a physical gift is necessary, maybe, you know, do something that's personalized, like bake a cake for someone or give them a specialized card, redeemable for dinner at your home. Hmm. You know, it says, I'm going to cook for you your favorite dinner at, you know, whenever you ask, we'll set a date. Yeah. And here's your card saying that we're going to do this. Or if you know that there's something in their life that they really don't like doing, and maybe you can do it more easily, or maybe you're better at it, um, offer to do that to them and put it in a card. Say, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to mow your lawn for a month next summer. Um, and, or, Give a donation. Learn about what their values are. And many people have enough stuff and they have enough money to buy all the stuff they need. They don't actually need physical objects. Yeah. You can learn what their values are and give a donation to their favorite charity. Or even better, learn about their values and uncover a charity they didn't even know about that reflects their values Hmm. and give a donation to that. Um, Well, by the way, these are all... These are and this is showing energy, right? It's showing that you were into me. You were trying to figure out my code. Yes, exactly. And again, that's first of all reduces the anxieties around gift giving. It makes us more enthusiastic about the other people in our lives to learn more about them. It it strengthens bonds. Mm. And after. After all, that's what the gift giving is supposed to be about. It's not simply to celebrate, well, it's partly to celebrate the holiday, et cetera, but it's also to strengthen the bonds yeah. between us. That's and powerful. Let's as let... you strengthen the bonds between in each other, you can also strengthen our bonds with Earth by making the gift, first of all, something that's valued and won't be wasted but also thinking through the gift and trying to buy something that's less damaging to the environment mm. um, in, in various ways. And there's some online resources people can use to figure out what's less damaging to the environment. In you know, general, 
Ken, Kenneth, let's let's do this. Let's take a break and come back. I want to I want to come back and have you talk about that because I mean at this time of year it's a it really is a beautiful thing to think about how do we also you know what's the gift we could give Earth um, and yeah. it might simply be something it just might be toning it down a little bit like you're talking about and backing yeah. it down. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Kenneth Worthy, the author of the book Invisible Nature: Healing the Destructive Divide Between People and the Environment. We'll uh, take a break. We'll be back in one minute. Stick with us, folks. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. It may not be white much longer if global warming continues. You know, we, we, we've got to have a discussion about uh, some of the environmental needs of our world and this holiday season. Now, I know it seems like, oh, you're really putting a damper on everything. But um, here's an example. My son just had a, uh, a fundraiser at his school. He's a student body officer and is a, had a fundraiser. And they're trying to raise like $25,000, $30,000 for a charity that they could give at this time of year. How great is that? Well, then he came to us and he says, uh, I need an elf costume. And I'm like, I went to my closet because I'm one that's known to have a lot of elf costumes. And I was all out of elf costumes. And he's like, you know what? Everyone's just going to the store and buying elf costumes. And I'm like, we're not buying an elf costume so you can go around and gather money. Why don't you all just donate the money that you'd pay for an elf costume to the charity you're trying to raise money for? I'd rather pay $25 to the charity than have you go buy an elf costume you'll never wear again. And he looked at me like, well, that's brilliant. But all of a sudden, 10 student body officers are buying elf costumes. We're consuming in order to gain money for a charity when we should just be giving the money to the charity. Come on. So our guest today is uh, is basically teaching us the point, that very point. Kenneth Worthy is his name. He's a Ph.D. at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He also um, is the author of the book Invisible Nature, Healing the Destructive Divide Between People and the Environment, and uh, has a wonderful blog on psychology today called Finding the Human Place in Nature. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Worthy, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Great to have you here. And uh, we have a few more minutes, about five or four or five more minutes. Talk to us about this, um, what, what we can do to kind of bring, you know, I guess, Mother Nature, Mother Earth into this uh into this season, this holiday season, where we also maybe find a present for her. Yeah, I, I really like you said that before the the break, and um, you can give a gift for other people and a gift for nature right. as well. And the gift for Earth is not just a gift for Earth that's this kind of abstraction. You're really giving to future generations. And, you know, just a little bit of the context of the news right now you know, the 200 nations around the world just came to an agreement about climate change in uh, Paris. And that is not just for our current, you know, people currently alive. That's actually a gift for future generations of people and for 
other beings on the earth, other animals and other plants, etc. So you can make decisions around your gift giving that are not just for the actual person you're giving the gift to, but for future generations as well and for the earth and the planet as a whole. And you can still love giving, right? It's not – you're not – you can give and – but give smart is what you're saying. Don't give just to give and don't give so that people stack stuff up and don't give just so we have a huge accumulation of white elephant gifts. That's right. It's funny because, you know, some gifts may actually cost people some effort and money. You know, think of how much storage space people are renting these days mm. because they have too much stuff. And, you know, your gift may be, if it's not thought out, may end up being something that just goes into somebody's storage or into the trash, as we were talking about before. Um, but, you know, there are lots of gifts um, to the earth. We were talking about donations before. There are lots of environmental organizations that need support, you know, that really do need support, like the World Wildlife Fund, International Animal Rescue, etc. cetera. Mm. International Anim- Animal Rescue has been helping the orangutans in uh, Sumatra um, and Borneo who are being displaced by all of the palm oil plantations. They're losing their homes and they're at risk of going extinction in the next, um, in the next decades if we don't do something. Um, so, and they're also, I really like gifts. If, you know, if it's got to be something physical and tangible that you can give something, give someone, I really like gifts that are, made out of recycled goods you know i have in my pocket a wallet made out of the used inner tubes of bicycle tires Hmm. and actually it looks way better than you might expect and it's been one of the most durable wallets i've ever had wow and it's a product that would just be thrown away it's a material that would just be thrown away um, and I've had it for years. It's a great one. It's also, when I go to the tropics, it's very good. It doesn't matter if it gets wet, yeah. et cetera. Plus, you can so, probably patch a tire with it <laughs> if you had to. In an emergency, yeah. I could If you had to MacGyver water. it. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, Ken, I think, it's, I think it really is important. And I think getting back to your other points about this is about bonds. This is about people. Um, and sometimes when we hear about environmentalists or envir- environmentalism, we some people cringe because they don't they don't understand it. But really, this is about a relationship with our own earth and our own surroundings. And I guess all you're really saying is be conscientious, think, use your head, and understand that this time of year doesn't have to be connected to things, especially if the things are going to choke the earth. That's right. And, um, yeah, think it through a little bit. A little thought goes a long way, and it makes the gift so much more meaningful, and it makes it more multidimensional because it's not just a a thing that's exciting for that five minutes, but something that maybe does something good for the planet and will benefit people for generations. Yeah. No, I love it. And, Kenneth, I think I I love having you on just because – you have such a great, I think, spirit about the whole thing, and we don't pay enough attention to it. So we do appreciate you. Happy holidays to you. And everybody, go check out his website, KennethWorthy.net, or you can go to Psychology Today and look up The Green Mind. Um, great stuff. He's got. He's just a great resource for this earth and for all of us. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going on in the head coach search here at BYU. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, friends. Let's go down to two rocket men, Spencer Linton, Jason Shepard from BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. That's a great song, man. Don't you love this song? So good. Can't you, let's just listen to it for a second. Okay, soak it in. Okay, that's good. Man. You feel it? You feel it? Absolutely. Man. Hey, um, how are you guys? We're good. You we gotta... were just kind of like floating in space, <laughs> waiting to be plucked out of the air by this coaching decision. I know. What is the deal? What we're, we're trying to figure out now, I, I know it's probably been brought up a couple of times that, uh, that Bronco Mendenhall was hired after 12 days. Today's day 11. On the 12th day of Christmas. See, maybe that's oh, what's going to happen again. This is huge. On the 12th day of coaching, search my true love gave to me. <laughs> my true love, Tom Homo, <laughs> gave to me. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, and then somehow you got to get Ken Niamatololo's name in there. Well done, Matt. Thank you. You've practiced Thank you. since yesterday. What I, well, let me just tell you how I've learned to say it. You say Neum Ma too low, and then I think, nope, do two lows. Too low, 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 low. See, see you know, if he ends up being the guy that BYU hires, it will start to just roll off the It'll tongue. It will be natural. It will just be natural, and people will be so impressed that you can just say that with ease. It's, well, it's people, so true. People back east call him Coach Neumat or Coach Ken. Or Coach Lolo, but they so don't. Like, they don't even try to say his name. Uh, it just becomes like. I guess we just make up a nickname for him. Yeah, I just call him Coach Lolo. Jamal Williams calls him Coach K Lolo. <laughs> I'm going to call him Jag because he's from the Navy, right? <laughs> Jag, Joint Ad, whatever General, whatever. Ju- yeah. Hey, um, Judge Advocate. Judge General. Advocate Gen- General. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's what, that feels right. My hey, mom loved that show. My mom loves Jags. Like the the car? No, guys. In, like the guys in uniforms. Okay. Oh, the actual judge. Advocate the actual generals. judge advocate generals. Okay. Hey. Um. Also, they say that uh, Oregon State's defensive uh, coordinator Sataki. What's his first name? Kalani. Kalani Sataki, ex uh, running back from BYU, is is in town. That is correct. Well, is he in town or is we don't Tom know oh. in town in Corvallis? Interesting. There's conflicting reports on whether or not that uh, face-to-face is here in the great state of Utah mm-hmm. or up in Oregon. Either way, we're pretty sure that his formal interview will take place today. Okay. Okay. This is big news. And it's so, not already taking place. So Tom Holmo took his took the BYU jet, a.k.a. Delta Airlines. Cougar up, Lear. Cougar Lear. Yeah, up to mm-hmm. Cougar Lear. Up to... <laughs> up to uh, up to Oregon, huh? This is interesting. So, so what happens? Just say if Ken doesn't want the job, Sataki doesn't want the job. What do you do then? I don't think that situation uh, is probable. Oh, okay. okay. I, I think that if Kalani is offered, that that he's going to that take it's a no brainer. Yeah, he's going to take. He'll the take job. it. Just yes, but because it's a head coaching job at BYU. Yes, and he's is... never he's never been a head coach. This is his. You know, his alma mater, he's expressed interest in being here before. Hmm. And so I just don't see any reason why he wouldn't. if they offer him and say, we want you to be our coach, he would say no. But, okay, man, this is so, it could happen soon. You would, you would think slash hope, but, you know, at the end of the day, Tom Homo 
he he wants to get this right. right. And as fast as he wants it to happen, he also wants to make sure that he, you know, dots all the I's, crosses the T's, all that kind of stuff. And as as badly as he wants to have it done fast, I think he's going to take as long as it needs to take. You don't want to mess this up. Yeah. Because this is his legacy, right? I mean, hey, I've said I think this is the most important BYU hire ever. Ooh, why? Because we're on the we're on the cusp of independence. Yeah, yeah because yeah. BYU is is at a crossroads. Uh, there, there's so much uncertainty on, and we're just obviously focusing on the football side of things. Uh-huh. But with so much uncertainty, and if they're going to be able to have that P five inclusion, whoever the next coach is is going to be the coach when that decision either happens or doesn't. You would mm-hmm. think. So it, it's such a huge hire. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. That's yeah, a so lot no pressure of pressure for this new because then next year's next year is, is is I think it's the worst schedule I've ever seen. Or is it the best? It could be the best if you could win. But it's it, certainly the biggest or the, hardest. the, the most uh um I can't think of the right word. Uh, gnarliest. Daunting. Gnarly. Daunting. Okay, there yeah. we go. Yeah, daunting's good too. Aggressive. Bad. Opportunistic. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a big year, and so you've got to come start. You've got to build a whole new system, and you've got the hardest year of all time. Ambitious mm. is also another word we could use for I that. Like yeah, ambitious. ambitious. That's a great one. Those are great words, you guys. It's like Where, you've done where's this. The th- do you have the thesaurus over there? The thesaurus? Yeah, the thesaurus. Uh, actually, my thesaurus, we checked it out. Someone's checked it out. They're borrowing it right now. Okay. I used to think that was a dinosaur. <laughs> Oh, that was the worst dinosaur there the is. Thesaurus. The thesaurus. The thesaurus rex. And over here we have the thesaurus. <laughs> I hate that high When I was a kid, when I was like seven, I was like, is that a dinosaur? Yeah. Yeah. See, I've, were you big into the dinosaurs? I never got into dinosaurs. Not hugely, but I mean, enough that, you know, I was a little boy, so like there was some intrigue there. Yeah. For, for a me. while, my son wanted to be a paleontologist when he was about six. He knew what a paleontologist was? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. Mine just wants to, you know, <laughs> watch TV. Yeah, we're not talking about paleontology at my place. <laughs> well, that we're talking same, about angry birds. <laughs> that same kid is now 13, and now all he does is watch TV and play video okay, games. Good. Oh, good. So he's normal. He's normal. Yeah, so he's yes. a normal kid. Yeah, yeah that's really good. <laughs> Whew, that was close. Hey, I forgot to tell you guys, it is, um, it's a very special day today. It's National Cupcake Day. You've, this has been a while. We've been on a fast of like these holidays. What happened? Like, I think why, it's why did Christmas. you go away from that? It's also Bill of Rights Day. But okay. with you guys, I thought more it, more apropos would be cupcakes than Bill of Rights. What are you saying there, Matt? I don't quite know. Do but, you have cupcakes upstairs? You know what? We don't. But this is usually when Don goes over to the creamery and buys us all cupcakes. Because Don's listening to the show right now, and he's here in the building. So that's mm-hmm. usually when he jumps right out of his chair and sprints and buys us all cupcakes. But we'll see. We won't know till the show's over. But if he gets us cupcakes, I'm sure Don will bring you guys some cupcakes. Is there a day that isn't something? No. Like, like it's this day is this day. And- yeah, it's June 12th, but mm, nobody knows what it is. Hey, by the way, uh, Ken Niamatololo's birthday is on mm-hmm. May 8th, which is my birthday. So you want him to be the coach? So bad. That's also my birthday. And it's Ben's birthday. And my sister's birthday. And, your and sister's Harry birthday. S. Truman's birthday. And Harry S. Truman's birthday. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you know that, Jason? Well, I'm from Independence, and he's, oh, okay. and he's the man okay. from Independence. Okay, that man, makes sense. So I, I knew a lot about Harry S. Truman. You're like, I was going to say, like, what? 
What? You're like a thesaurus. I am. I am like the dinosaur, the thesaurus. <laughs> the thesaurus rex. Hey, of, um, of the Cretaceous uh, segment. No. Um, yeah, the Cretaceous period. <laughs> the, yeah. The Cretaceous. Hey, uh, what's, are you guys doing your show, though? I mean, you still doing it? Oh, we got to get you to the show. Anything com- what's coming up on your show? You're going to talk about Ken coaching deal. What else? Certainly. Well, we're going to give you the update on Ken Niamatololo and Kalani Sataki. Blaine Fowler is going to join us and give us his perfect BYU staff. Mm. And that is what we are asking all of y'all, y'all. today. Okay. Your perfect BYU football coaching I staff. I like it. That's good. That's a great question. Okay. Good show. I can already do? feel it. What would you do? Magic happens, Matt. I would. I'd <laughs> pick you two, that's for sure. No, you wouldn't. Yeah, I would. I'm going to just assume he was being sincere with that, Attaboy, and I'm going to take Jason. it. I was totally being sincere. Oh, now go and you do your show. need to do a few more of these interviews, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> that is so rude. That is so rude. Anyway, have a great show. That's sincere. Thanks, Doctor. Knock, knock him Thanks. dead. And look for, look for cupcakes from Don. I don't mm-hmm. know. We'll see. I'm just throwing it out there. See you guys. Have a good one. Thanks. Yeah. Man, that's cool. So Don's probably going to get us uh, cupcakes if he's listening. Um, hey, did you hear this crazy story about Rocky Raccoon? Some of you knew him back with Bullwinkle, and you thought he was dead. He's not dead. They found Rocky Raccoon. He hitched a ride on a commuter train the other day. Crawling past commuters during the morning rush, a raccoon hitched a ride on the early train pulling out of Union Station in Toronto around 7.15 a.m. The heck? Easy boy. Easy boy. He seems mad. Before the train before the train's departure, workers heard a passenger shriek. Is that a passenger or is that the that's a raccoon? I think that's the raccoon. Dude, that raccoon sounds like my Hold grandbaby. On. I'll take care of him. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. You done killed that raccoon <laughs> dead. Uh, this raccoon started scaring all of the passengers, and the passengers eventually evacuated, leaving the raccoon in a private coach for the remainder of the trip. Uh, there's a raccoon in train number seven. That freeloading raccoon, by the way, newly named Rocky, was seen stowed underneath the train seats in a photo posted to Twitter by the transit safety officer. I know you got to be careful, folks. You got to be careful. You never know what you're going to get. As you know, though, we do like to end the show with a hero story. So who better to be our hero than four police officers from Memphis, Tennessee? Here's the story, folks. An 11-year-old boy and his mother returned home from church on Sunday to find that the boy's Xbox, all of his games, some of his mother's items had been stolen. The four officers who responded to the burglary say uh, that... uh, You know, they realized the family didn't have a whole lot and that the Xbox meant everything to that little boy. The officers were touched when they asked the boy if he was going to ask Santa for a new Xbox. He said, my mom works long hours and several jobs. She uses that money just to pay the bills. So I'm not going to even ask. The officers then wanting to help make Christmas a little brighter, stopped by a local game stop uh, during a break in the day to buy a new Xbox and three games for the 11-year-old boy. When the clerk uh, learned about their plan, he split the bill and the store's manager even chipped in a free controller 
The four officers surprised the boy with a new Xbox. According to the police department, the boy and his mother were so overwhelmed that they were both brought to tears, and even the officers too. The four cops involved in the surprise were identified as Officer Jerry Grave, Graves, Officer Antonio Martin, Officer Antoine Cooper, and Officer Justin Borland. They are, folks, the heroes of the day for the Matt Townsend Show. Again, the great spirit of giving, the great spirit of service. When we see a need, folks, the heroes meet the need. The heroes do whatever they can to meet the need. And it doesn't mean you have to, you know, always risk your life or limb. It just means sometimes you need to lose yourself in the service of others. So I challenge all of us to get out there and be a hero for someone else. Look into the hearts of the people you're trying to uh, provide Christmas for this year. And maybe let's take some of the advice of our last guest, Kenneth Worthy. Let's not make it all about consuming, all about money, all about what we purchase. Let's also just start giving. Let's start giving ourselves our heart, our time. That's the reason we do this show. We'll be back again tomorrow, folks. More ideas to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. If you want, you can find it uh, our show on a podcast at iTunes or tune in or go to byuradio.org. We'll be back again tomorrow, folks. Until tomorrow, take care of each other, watch each other's backs, and uh, we'll be back again tomorrow. Talk to you then.